0: And I would just spend enormous. What amount were you? Of, what
1: were you trying to make? Like one scene, or these tile sets? Or uh, like... Initially, I was just doing
0: tile sets. Right.
1: And uh, what were they for? Were you trying to
0: program as well, or no? You just I was just I just thought it was a wonderful thing to do to make tile sets. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> That's that is awesome. <laughs>
1: Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to Daniel Cook, who is the Chief Creative Officer at SpryFox. He is best known for his design work on games such as Triple Town, Realm of the Mad God, and Steambirds, as well as for his writing on game design at (laughs) LostGarden.com. My, my intention with these uh with these podcasts is um to uh you know get behind you know w- what makes someone a game designer how do how do they get into how do they get into that as a how do they choose that as a career why it's important to them you know why making games matters to them so mm-hmm. um you know we'll talk some about design specific games but you know i i also because i think people don't often talk as much as they should about why they make games and like you know That's why that why quite that, reasonable right yeah. that why that matters to them mm-hmm. um, and uh so uh, in my keeping um you know what i've been starting off with is asking um you know what were what what was the first time when, when were the first time that games mattered to you what's like your first memory you know whether these are you know board games or video games or or whatever so the first time that games mattered to me.
0: So the first time I remember playing a game
1: mm-hmm.
0: was there had been games around me um, for a couple of years. We ended up getting an Amiga 1000 right. um, when I was a kid. And before that, we had had a ColecoVision. And I never was into the ColecoVision. I was never really like the consoles never really appealed to me. But when we got the Amiga... Uh, there was a game called uh, the Fairy Tale Adventure. Oh, that's one of my favorite games. That's and right. yeah, and it's this. It was a. It was a shock to the system mm-hmm. because it was this vast world that you could explore and oh. discover things. And there was. It was extre- extraordinarily harsh in some ways yep. and difficult. Um, and there were secrets to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, uh, it,
1: had, it had a map that sort of reflected the reality of the world, but wasn't totally accurate. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: And like. Uh, fun, you could actually get lost in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually had a fun little mechanic where you could have a map, but the
1: map was a consumable resource. There were these uh, like bird totems of some oh, sort. Oh, boy, I vaguely remember that. Um, yeah, you click on it, and you, you, it would show you the just the local area. Is yes. that right? Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. So
0: it, you, you you like knowing your way around this vast world was this limited resource that you had to be very careful about. Um, and i played it with my brother mm-hmm. and so i was younger and my uh, brother was good at combat and i really liked to explore mm-hmm. so he didn't he thought the exploring was boring and so we'd trade off like i right. would i would run around the map and then when combat happened i'd hand it over to him he'd fight <laughs> the monsters right. and it was this sort of like cooperative experience even though it wasn't cooperative at all yeah um, and so that 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 really like sparked sparked my brain, right? Yeah. Um, and about the same time, um, Deluxe Paint was on the Amiga as okay, well. Sure. So I started saying, well, I'm gonna draw, you know, draw pictures of this and put them together. And then you had to learn tile sets, and yep. it started getting me into the creative aspect of it all.
1: Yeah, well, I can see how a game like Fairy Tale Adventure make you wonder about things like tile sets and like how you can because obviously they didn't paint the whole world from scratch, right? Yep. Instead, it's you you create the artistic work is creating these building blocks which then fit together in all these interesting ways and i remember how you know how distinct all of the different areas were of the world you know sort of these forest areas and swamp areas and deserts and mountains and um you know they all had kind of these various mazes that you would go around through and yeah that was a really unique game um, yeah,
0: one guy. One guy. I think it was David Joyner who ended up making it. And he right. wrote all the music. He programmed the entire thing. He did all the art. Um, and, uh, you know, it all fit, of course, on a floppy disk back in the day. <laughs> uh, but that's a, that's an impressive accomplishment even to this day.
1: Yeah. Yeah, back then it's incredible. I mean, I, I feel like we're really spoiled now. with Because beyond that, like, we, we imagine what it would take to design and create the game. But, like, nowadays we also have great tools to work with. Right. Whereas, who knows what you were writing the game in back then? I really, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time understanding. You know, it's like some people were still writing in assembly back then. Yep. Like, I, I don't know if at that, that period they probably moved beyond that. But. Um, and also,
0: just the idea of a large open world with action combat. I mean, Zelda was still relatively young at that point. Like a lot of the a lot of the techniques and tropes that we rely on, like oh, of course you have hit points, and of course you do this, right. were still relatively fresh in uh, people's minds. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, a fairy tale would have been easily 100 times the size of Zelda, I would think, yes. like, yeah. if you think of the world. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a game I think about sometimes in terms of is it possible to recapture that feeling nowadays? Because when people explore now, or the games that have some type of exploration now, it's very much expected that there's going to be a map Right and like the stuff you see gets recorded and you're never really going to be lost, and you know that feeling, that feeling is uh, not common in games. Like the the other game I remember that very much had that feeling was Seven Seas of Gold. I don't know if you ever got. To oh, I never that. never played that one. Yeah, yeah, that was so that was even earlier. That would have been like eighty four, eighty five, and you know that you're a, you a conquistador, right? It generated mm-hmm. this you know random continent for you to discover, mm-hmm. and. um you, the movement was so, I would say, slow. It's not slow. You were moving at a normal speed, basically. It's just the the continent was immense. Right. Like, you weren't going to discover it all in one trip. In fact, you could make you know, six or seven trips and still only, you know, have revealed a, a certain percentage of the, the whole area. And, and beyond that, you would move faster along rivers. So, you know, you kind of go up the river. And then when you look back at the, what, the area that you were revealed, you'd see these big areas that are... Un, you know, unknown because right. they're like off the rivers, and you know, which was a nice uh, reflection of you know if you ever look at like old maps of you know what mm-hmm. they thought the New World looked like. You know, there were certain areas they're more certain of, you know, going up to a bay and they explore the whole part of the bay and mm-hmm. like they get you know the coastlines very quickly, but the interiors were kind of mysterious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, capturing that concept of the unknown is is kind of. Uh, I think it's one of those, those sort of lost aesthetics, you know. In, it is. In, in, it is games.
0: We, we could still do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could randomly generate a world and give people, you know, a limited access to recording that. Right. Um, so there's definitely the ability to
1: do it. The question is does the audience value that? Yeah. Would they just be confused by that? I mean, you know, who knows? It's probably just one of these things that probably deserves to be tried again. <laughs> um, it's been really interesting to see uh, I guess what I guess what I would call sort of the return of consequence like ah. over the last few years yeah. um you know there've been the, you know mainstream success for games that have you know more heavy consequences and you know I mean thinking of games like like XCOM or FTL or whatever that mm-hmm. that are you know it's sort of a pendulum right it's it swung very far towards you know accessibility and making sure the player never feels lost or never feels punished or so on right um and uh yeah, this could potentially be another one of those things. Though, though, I think I think what's I, I see the market broadening in a lot of
0: ways because at the same time you have these like very punishing, you know, the, the dark souls or the or, or the roguelikes. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you have the the narrative story games that are it's almost impossible to get lost in sure. the, in the game. Right. Um, you know, like a Gone Home, you will probably finish Gone Home, and it will be a pleasant experience. Right. But that's not the aesthetic that it's going for. But what's nice about the market is both of them. Are, are present.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think there was a period of time when we kind of felt like there had to be one answer right. for for games. And I know I personally, for for a while, was kind of, um, I guess I would say I was anti-story. I don't know how else to put it. You know, mm-hmm. like I I did not to me that was not what games were about. Games should be dynamic. They should be procedural. They should be about the player's story. Um, you know, this was a bit of like an angry young man period, I guess you'd say, oh. and. Um, So, but, you know, as time goes by, now it's just like, well, games are a really big tent, you know, and, um, you know, I think it's really exciting to see um, people pushing narrative in games in in things, because it's a format that allows things that, you know, books and movies cannot. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason that people who are very interested in telling a story shouldn't be exploring those type of ideas.
0: It's, it's almost like uh, when you're an angry young man, you see the world as a, uh, a zero-sum yep. uh, scenario. It's like it's either because resources are limited and I'm at the bottom of every single to- uh, you know, totem pole out there. So how do I go and get my little slice of this obviously limited pie? Right. And then at a certain point you realize, well, the pie is pretty big and uh, there's probably room for everybody.
1: Yep. Yep, for sure. Yeah. Um, Okay, so getting back to, <laughs> right to where we, we started. So, uh, you know, are there other notable games that stood out for you from that early period? Or um, there was like actually
0: what? there was actually another one, which was a strategy game. I've always mm-hmm. loved strategy games. Um, that was a version of um, BattleTech, essentially. Okay. Uh, on it was a shareware version of BattleTech that was on oh. the. I think it was called MechForce. Okay. Um, that was on the Amiga as well, and. Uh, you know, hex grid. Uh, you have your giant. You have your giant mech. You design your own mech. So that that started to give me a sense of like balancing and like right. how you put variations on a single object together. Uh, and then we we would, we would tend to play cooperatively in that as well. And it had this mm-hmm. wonderful, like, time-based system. Like,
1: officially cooperatively? Or you're essentially, like, you're playing the game and you're kind of both just jumping back and forth on, to the keyboard?
0: Uh, what we do, it was actually cooperative. So there was uh, uh, AI mechs that would you would fight against. So, okay. it was the you know, you'd have... Um, so the system was—it was a clever little system. But it was—it was hot
1: seat essentially, right?
0: Um, You're playing. On yes, it was—it was hot seat. So okay. uh, it, it was—it was totally hot seat, and uh, every action took a certain number of seconds to mm. complete, and then it sort of had a simulation, a, a, a time-based simulation going on, and and whenever someone's became active again, and after they completed an action, they would pop up and say, "What do you want to do next?" And they'd do it, and then you'd see the time running down, and the next person would pop up, and so on and so forth. And We spent so many hours on that. Right. Would have huge. Would have uh, well, huge at the time. we Would have like four or five people overall playing the game at sure. once, well, crowded cool. around this. Little so how did you place.
1: how did you find a game like that back then? Ah, uh, pirating. Pirating. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> the
0: uh, so this was in we well, May- can't pirate the shareware game you I can't guess. pirate the shareware or game did you,
1: was it a cracked or I don't know what their no it, it was model shareware was. and we we right, ended right. up paying
0: for it right um, well, there you go but the um, this was in Maine uh-huh. in the uh, when was that that was probably the end of the eighties uh-huh. you know mid to end 80s. 80s. and uh, there were people who would ha- also had the same computer and there was sort of this little uh, you know. Um, chain of people, who, Circle would, who, people yeah. you know, who would copy hundreds and hundreds of discs onto these floppies you'd go over to their house and uh, you'd get like you know you'd bring your discs and you'd copy several of them yep uh, and that that was really like how
1: I got to see a large swath of games yes yeah. Um, yeah. yeah it's interesting to hear how people came upon games back then because it was um, things just weren't standardized you know there are a lot of people who didn't by like 1990 that this was maybe not so much of a problem but but earlier on a lot of people just didn't even have access to a game store or right. you know like uh, there wasn't you know there was sort of a games press but obviously there was nothing online right mm-hmm. so maybe you had a subscription to a magazine or maybe you didn't and um, I remember my Amiga the, the Amiga magazine I got was what's it called Info? Info. It Info. Was Info, yeah. yeah. It, was a, it was a great magazine. It was like, sort of a, a
0: hand-published almost. Yeah, um, it, felt,
1: it felt like that. I think they actually published it on an Amiga. Yes, Like they made yes. a big deal about that. And I feel like it was British. I don't know if it was – I have no idea. I, I think they, they referenced a number of games that I was never really able to um, – to, to, to like find over yeah. here, but um,
0: info was our bible. We would yeah. wait for it like uh, we lived at the top of this like long. It was always winter in Maine, as far as I can remember as a child, of this long snowy hill, mm-hmm. and we would go down and we would like th- this is the time that info tends to come, and we would trudge down to the bottom of the hill yeah. and open the mailbox, and it was like Christmas whenever yeah. it arrived. Oh yeah, I mean
1: it was it was a great magazine in its day. That's funny because I it's I hear about a number of magazines brought up from that era and i almost had forgotten the name because for some reason i i don't know see back then you're just such in a bubble like you yes. don't know if the thing that you're interested in how unique it is that like is this what everyone in the country who mm-hmm. is into amigas is getting or did somehow you just randomly find out about this thing like you you know you you don't really have a, a context for that, and I haven't no. heard a lot of people really reference that that magazine. But because
0: there was Amiga World, and yes. Then, then right. in, but Info was the one that was like I don't know, it had more
1: personality. Yeah. yeah. Well, they they had great reviews. Like I felt like their reviews were very honest. Mm-hmm. They were maybe a bit in the in the bag for Psygnosis. Yes. If you remember <laughs> that, like there were actually a few games that they really liked from Psygnosis that like I. Did just not connect with me, yeah. um, and uh, even though there's plenty of good psychosynthesis stagnos- games, but like pteropods like,
0: and things like that. Yeah, I, I'm hard to remember the name. There was yeah. I remember
1: one game that was essentially trying to be everything. Like it was a giant galactical combat game. Oh okay. And like you know, it had like the Moo level, the Masters of Orion level mode, but then you could also like go into the planet and be like running around and doing battle there. And like it was just, you know, it was as grandly overambitious game as was. Common back then, and yep. like it didn't just didn't quite all all hang together. But but beyond that, their reviews were like very accurate, mm-hmm. um, and uh, like that's where I found a lot of the best the best uh, NBA games back then. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah, that that's uh,
0: um th- th- that was really formative. I almost think like there's uh the the culture of games that you grew up in, the platform of games that sure. you grew up with, has it has a huge influence on how you perceive games as as an adult. Uh, like I wasn't huge into console titles, yes, um, but I was uh, big into Amiga titles, and Amiga had that wonderful, like I think of it as the the British explosion mm-hmm. of uh, like all these strange games, like Lemmings and, mm-hmm. and that type of, uh, and then the various shooters and so on and so forth. And it was a distinctly different sort of DNA than you found in the console titles at the at the time. It was much right. more experimental, and there was like strange things like. Um, uh, Carrier Command, and mm-hmm. uh, Starglider 2 yep. that were kind of these open-world simulation arcade experiences. experiences. Right. Um, and it was just a wide variety. Very, very different than, say, like, the Nintendo DNA that was also happening at the time. Also different than the PC DNA that was going on. Right. Um, with the Ultimas and the things of that nature.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, the, the Amiga games were definitely weirder. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. And uh, it... Um, you know, I, I remember among my, my friends, there was like there was the PC guys or the what they had three eighty six or whatever it would have been back uh-huh. then, and there was the Amiga guys, and yeah, it was, you know, they had the console wars now, and it was the same thing back then about who was better, and uh, yeah. um, but uh, uh, the Amiga was a, it was a nice machine, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so what? Uh, so at that point. Did you feel like you wanted to make games? Is that something that, like, occurred to you? Or was it, like, its games are still this mysterious thing that just appeared? There was
0: no one around me at the time that made games. And mm-hmm. I didn't really
1: think about making games.
0: But I was... I was in a scenario situation where I could I had lots of hobbies and mm. one of my hobbies would, ended up being pixel art and I knew okay. nobody else who did pixel art and it was just something like I felt like I had to learn the techniques from scratch and I would just spend enormous what amount were you of, what
1: were you trying to make like one scene or these tile sets or uh, like? initially I was just doing tile sets right and uh, what were they for were you trying to program as well or no you just I, was just, I just thought it was a
0: wonderful thing to do to make tile sets. And, uh, <laughs> that's, that is awesome.
1: That's, that's hilarious. I mean, that's not much different. from There were a lot of construction set games back then, right? Yes. And, like, people would make – it's interesting to explain for people who didn't live that, that era that, like, you know, there was, like, adventure construction set and pillball construction set and all these games. And people would, would make these things, and they really had no way to share them. Mm-hmm. right like yeah. now you can actually do something with that right yeah. like people you know there's the internet but like back then people would there was just it was the joy of making something right? right even if like you couldn't really see it in action
0: it was this strange like just personal thing and, and like there was no one at school I could talk to it about you know it was this, this thing that I did in my spare time for I mean I was perhaps an introverted
1: child that probably helped right sure um, at a certain did, point did though, you, were your parents like aware of your tile set uh, oh yeah, yeah like, they, what did they, they think of it exactly
0: I think they were just generally happy that their young son is using the computer, and using computers is generally a good thing.
1: Right. So, did they view it as like something creative that you were doing? Yeah, they, they thought, oh,
0: he's doing art on the computer. Right. So wonderful. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's funny.
1: Art is at least something that's understandable, right. Even if it's in digital format. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, and
0: then at a certain point, that started to morph into like hey, I'm going to start, like, creating my own game idea around this. And mm-hmm. I had this uh, this idea that my concept was Star Trader. Okay. And I had, you know, you could fly from planet to planet and trade goods, and I was very inspired by Elite. It Elite, was sort right. of a turn-based version of Elite. Okay. Um, and it never really got anywhere. It, like, it ended up having, like, hundreds and hundreds of pieces of art associated with it <laughs> and, like, huge amounts of text and, and like, my... It was. There, I, it's, I hesitate to call them design documents. Right, right. They were. They were. You know, proto proto design documents that you say, and then it kind of works like this, and it's. You know, right. no programmer would have ever been able to do
1: anything with it. But, yeah. uh, well, I probably had the opposite program pr- problem in that I could I could program, but I could not make content at all in terms uh, of you know art or whatever. So. It's too bad we don't live down the street. Right, right. <laughs> that would have been funny. Um, yeah. That's
0: one of the benefits of the internet today. Those those type of folks can actually, like, meet up at some point. Right,
1: right. And probably start their careers five years earlier or whatever right. it is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so then I assume at this point you headed off to college at some time around yeah. then? Yeah, yeah. I headed off to college and... Um, where, I, did, where did you go?
0: I went to a school called Bowdoin. That's okay. in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a liberal arts school. Yeah. Um and uh, I studied physics there, so it was physics oh. and math. Okay. Um, I was always on the more like I thought, oh, I was going, I'm going to become an electrical engineer. That was the okay. that was the
1: direction I was sort of heading it's in. It's interesting. If you study physics and math, um, if you study physics and math, you um, didn't um, you didn't think maybe trying programming because. I actually did. I I tried programming. Um, I took like, um,
0: I probably took like uh, maybe three classes in programming. Mm -hmm. um, And it never really clicked with me. Like I enjoyed enjoyed the problems. I enjoyed the the way of thinking about it. But the thing that frustrated me was uh, typos. Mm. I found that my brain had a tendency to like make small errors and not see them. I would have like blindness to them and right. so would this
1: have been C or C++ at this point
0: um, they, we were I think we were learning like Pascal and assembly okay. at okay. that okay. point
1: yeah
0: um, so I, I actually liked the assembly the assembly was uh, tight tight enough <laughs> wow. that, okay. that uh, well it's it's sort of
1: like a small tiny little puzzle yeah, it's a little puzzle right? yeah you can yeah. make like a game that's sort of like you know learning assembly right?
0: core Wars that was the that, okay. that was uh, sort of the game side of that um, but um like i like solving the problem was fun and easy well, not mm-hmm. easy but delightful you know and uh, that that part was usually fine the algorithmic side of it was usually fine but then i would end up spending like 6 hours trying to find a bug that my brain just would not spot yeah so uh, that sort of tended to that, i think that discouraged me a little bit and, yeah. but, but math math was something that was a little uh math is a different type of thing There's you much more like Instead of it, the black box executing the program, mm-hmm. the math is you're working through it line by line and how all the variables yeah. work. I think you have to be a little
1: bit OCD to be a programmer. Yeah. Like, and, or it turns people into OCD. <laughs> like one, yeah. maybe there might be a, a bit of a feedback loop there because, yeah, like, you have to kind of accept the fact that it has to be a very specific way. Yeah. And yeah. there's no getting around that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's definitely not definitely not a common trait, perhaps. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's quite a change. So, um, but then I ended up getting into games from there mm-hmm. because um, I still I had this. We, the, I th- I always thought of it as my weird little hobby of doing the art on computers. Right. Right. No one else I knew did that, so I started doing it. And then there was this uh, Amiga demo scene. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, you basically just, like, you create art and you put music and you put okay. code together. Is and that the
1: thing where, you know, it tried to be, it had to be, like, a very small file? That that was
0: one of the type of uh, okay. competitions that they did. Okay. Uh, there were other ones that it were, you know, you purely could... Purely just what can you do with yeah, it? Yeah, you could fill up a disk, which, right. okay. you know, whatever that was.
1: Um, Huge and amount of space. 880K <laughs> right. or whatever
0: it was uh, that you could fill up. And uh, uh, I got involved with this group on IRC because we discovered the internet yes, at that point. Yeah. World Wide Web wasn't quite there. Yep. Uh, and uh, I was creating essentially like art for these music discs. And there was, you know, English musicians who would create this crazy digital music and put out albums. And they would have put display pixel art up on the screen at the same time the album was playing on your computer. Mm-hmm. And so I did that for um, a while. And at one point, I was basically going back in the summers to work at a gas station. That was, mm-hmm. the like, the one job that was available <laughs> <Wow>. to uh, <laughs> college students. And the, one of my friends who had been chatting with me, he's like, you know what, like – I think there's this company that could make use of you, mm-hmm. and so he took all of my art that I had sent him over the, over the over the past year or so, right. and he bundled it all up and he sent it off to his friends at a company called Epic Mega Games that <laughs> made right. Shareware. Epic Mega Games, I love that. Stuff. Epic they're, Mega they're Games, was original name, yeah, yeah. And they had they had an awesome logo back then. Yeah, I bet. Uh, it's lots of lots of beveling. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, uh, they weren't big on subtlety no <laughs> no uh, and you know they had, they had uh, Jazz Jackrabbit it was their big one and Epic Pinball and things right. like that um, and I got this email out of the blue and it's like hey do you want to instead of spending your summer at the gas station right. do you want to make art for this new game called? it was called Tyrion it was a vertically scrolling shoot em up okay. and uh, I was like that sounds much better so I'll do that And that's how I kind of started getting looped back into games. Yeah.
1: Okay. Cool. And uh, did that game come out? Actually, I don't don't think I've heard of that.
0: Tyrion, yeah. Tyrion came out. It came out in, that must have been the early 90s that it came out.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, it, uh, it... basically paid my bills for, like, three years. Wow, that's great. It's still still out there. Um, If you you look, um, so what we did at a certain point is we made it open source. Oh, that's cool. And uh, so all the art is out there under Creative Commons and the code's out there. And there's a a community around it that Mm -hmm. actually has ported it to, like, a dozen plus, 15 plus platforms. Um, So you can play it on your phone. You can play it, you know, on pretty much anything these days. And I still get emails nowadays, uh, years later, where people are like, oh, Tyrion, you know, like. uh, Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. It was sort of a a, um, Baroque title Mm -hmm. for a vertically screwing shoot 'em up. There were. What was unique about it? It had a plot. Okay. which it was was a surreal and strange plot, but it had this really, like, you could go, as you went from mission to mission, you kind of got these little narrative bits, and then within the missions, there were secrets where you could get additional narrative bits Mm -hmm. and unlock additional weapons, and so there was, like, dozens of weapons and dozens of these strange little stories and secret locations and puzzle levels and secret modes, Mm -hmm. and it was uh, sort of this really convoluted labyrinth of a game mm-hmm. and the players who got into that were just loved that very committed yeah yeah oh, that's cool
1: uh so were you like a, a contractor with them at that point or you work for them or like did you go down there what happened it was exactly?
0: a, it was kind of a it was a little ad hoc okay. um it, there was there was teams that worked on did you, pati- did you go to north carolina or it was they weren't in north carolina at the point oh were they near dc they, they were right? maryland yeah. yeah yeah okay yeah So it was kind of like this industrial park type place in Maryland, and uh, they had this, you know, not necessarily freshest in the world apartment where the devs (laughs) would come and stay, and uh, then would head off to the uh, head off to the office, and everyone would eat pizza, and uh, yeah, classic
1: twenties experience. Yes,
0: yes, very much so. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah.
1: Cool. And what happened? uh, So what happened after that? So then after after Tyrion.
0: Um, we um, there. We started on an RPG, mm-hmm. which was probably a bad idea. So it was an action RPG uh, called the Circle. That was that was the idea, and we did it in two D for a while. And we were we were. I, we, at that that's the point where I kind of uh, took on the design role, okay? Because the, the the concept of designer was alien to a lot of groups, folks at that point, right? And uh, we got to the point where it's like, well, decisions need to be made, right? And no one else needs is making the decisions, like previously on Tyrion the programmer had made decisions. I think he did an amazing job right, um, but on the RPG it was less that and so then I said, well, I've designed the inter the UI for some of the stuff. maybe I'll design some of this other stuff right uh, so it was kind of a you know
1: and when Wah. you mean, and when, you mean and when you say designed, you mean uh, Narrative design? Do You mean the systems design, it, like it, the it level was,
0: design? It was it was narrative design. There was some uh, level design. There was interface design. There was. I was just at that point. I was just getting a glimpse of what system design was. Mm-hmm. Um, I I, I probably I couldn't have had a name for it. I look at my old design documents, and they were um, they were the systems that, that were described were almost as an afterthought. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is unfortunate, but... Is that because in
1: your mind, like, the primary thing with the game was, I don't know, especially the story, but, like, the situation? Is that... Um,
0: not really. I just, um... I didn't know enough about how games worked mm-hmm. to talk about the pieces that were necessary to make a game. You didn't have the words to
1: verbalize.
0: Uh, yeah. This I, type of stuff. yeah. And so I, I would often describe things as like this happens, then this happens, and because of this thing, this other thing should
1: happen as well. Okay. Um, and are the so you uh, one thing that's been common in some of your writing over the years is your you push a lot of sort of game grammar, yeah. and Trying to come up with various terms is the, is the roots in the, of that kind of in projects like this where
0: very very much so, very much so. Like um, the circle was a failed project, um, mm-hmm. and we devoted a huge amount of our lives to it at that time. Um, it's funny yep. how you look back and you say that wasn't that
1: much of right. your life, but it felt w- like it for sure. When, when
0: you're in your twenties, yeah. it's like. This is like half my adult the life. It's per, a percentage of
1: your life at that point, yeah. yeah. Um, or at least, yeah.
0: And uh, um, and so a lot of it was looking back and saying, okay, that was a failure. Why did we fail? What did we do wrong? And then trying to like bring that forward into lessons and ideas and concepts that I could use in the
1: future. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was a long time ago, but like, what, what, what is your high level feeling about like how you would do a project like that differently nowadays?
0: So the first thing was actually a technology thing, mm-hmm. uh, which was at a certain point, Mark Rain was said, "Hey, there's this new thing called Unreal right. that we're working on, and 3D is going to be the future. 3D is where it's all at. Right. You're doing this 2D thing. You're going to walk." you know, ride the wave if you move your game over to 3D. Right. And so we're like, how how, how, how hard could it be? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then we got on to the Unreal Engine, and, of course, it was like this was before the Unreal Engine had even been released. Right. And so we were sort of struggling to make, an, like, a, you know, kind of an open RPG-type experience on an engine that was still starting to become polished just to make a basic first-person shooter. Right um and so it, the momentum just dropped like a rock
1: yeah yeah
0: um and yeah so that was uh that was that was probably my biggest lesson so that's probably one of the reasons I've actually gone very low tech in a lot of my stuff sure uh because i like th- those scars still remain that like high tech is not necessarily re- make better gameplay or better development it just yeah adds a cost and a it's, burden
1: yeah it's 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 a risk and you know mm-hmm. it's uh, i mean i definitely can speak to the transition uh because, you know i i designed the first civ game that was 3d oh, right yeah before yeah. was civ 4 was 3d and um you know by the end of the project i definitely had mixed feelings about that you know mm-hmm. i think i think that it did have to go 3d if nothing else to lead to something like civ 5 which i think was a very beautiful game gorgeous like, like really took advantage of 3d and so you know maybe it was just like well this is one of the the transitions you go to but there was definitely a lot of of clarity that was lost there was definitely um it it required you know a lot more resources you know to put into the game um you know Civ 3 definitely had a smaller team than Civ 4 and um that leads to its own you know headaches and problems and um you know I mean I think I'm probably overly critical just you know by, by nature of my own stuff I, I, you know I think it was ultimately it was fine you know we just did the best we could but mm-hmm. um, you know I think we I think the whole industry I guess you probably say the years would be from like 95 to 2005 kind of mm-hmm. went through this transition of like what does it mean to yep. go to 3d like do we we need to figure out that there should actually be a, what's the reason we would actually do that because for a while it was just like things are changing we have to make 3d games that's what people want to buy. Everything's going to become 3D.
0: It was technological progress, right? Like technology's improving,
1: games are improving due to technology. Of course, we need to follow that path. Yeah. And, and when any big thing emerges, there's always that kind of sense. I mean, you could say that some people maybe had that perception about free to play over the last three years. That like mm-hmm. they're like, this is this is just it. You know, the yeah. tra- in- industry is going to transition. Everything's going to be free to play. We better get on the bandwagon. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, with 3D, like when we kind of got to the end of that period people started, finally started to think of, like, well, 3D is just an option. Yeah. And it's very appropriate for some games, and it's not as appropriate for other games, and it has a set of trade-offs. And, yeah, now, we make, and now we can make like the right choice per project without, without feeling like you know, we're behind the curve. And one of the real ironic things about that era is the games that were perceived as cutting-edge now, the 3D games from the late 90s, uh, mid to late '90s looked terrible compared to like the games that were considered old-fashioned at the time that right. were still 2D because 2D art is timeless. It yeah. is what it, it is. It, right? it ages very well. Yeah, uh, and that's all. And, it's and we
0: had uh, that we had passed through the uh the 256 color barrier at that point. So <laughs> I right. uh, right. think can... the colors it was no longer the EGA uh, and CGA of the past. So
1: it actually ages very well. Yeah. That's, um, that's interesting. So what so what else would you would you change for a project? The
0: account? other lesson, which was a huge one, is um, I said, oh, design is planning. Okay. That was that was my my mm. philosophy at the time. Right. And so I'd written a very you,
1: large and extensive you want, to,
0: you want to know all the answers. Yes. I and I'd written a design document, you know, a large, extensive design document and that, that said, here's the game that we're going to build. And, of course, this was running into, like, every time I planned something, we would run into the reality of either the technology or the gameplay that was, that was evident, cameras, for example. Um, and then it would be like, oh, and then we've got this giant design document we have to, like, change. And I was so proud of this design document. I, I had great, you know, it was, it was the artifact I had created, so, of course, there was pride there. And then I watched the Unreal team, which had a very, very different philosophy, Theirs was to make these small things, to iterate them on them. And they never had this grand vision for the game so much. Mm-hmm. But because they had this very iterative process, they ended up a- actually making far more progress in this sort of shifting technological, you know, um, quicksand that was, that was going on at the time.
1: Right.
0: Um, and I look at that and I say, I was, I was very mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe this iterative approach has all sorts of robustness benefits that I was probably ignoring. Yeah. Well I was
1: I was lucky to start at at Fraxis, which you know, I like said is, is very much ingrained in the iterative design process. Mm-hmm. Like that's just that's just how things are done there. Um and uh you know I think if anything, the company like that has challenges when some you know sometimes you do need a little bit of planning. Mm. Um, but for sure, like that was that was something that was definitely ingrained in me early on. Was was um, you know you 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 try to as quickly as possible to get to something that you can play right right right, and that that's what that's what you learn from. I think I think that's an example of
0: uh, the benefits of great mentorship mm. or good mentorship. You know, start starting out on the right foot is probably hugely important. Like this has actually been one of the one of the things in my career is I feel like I've sort of been stumbling blindly right. um, because I, I don't know if I've ever really had a mentor in that in that sense. Um, so uh, it's it's actually great that you learned from you know th- there was actually a pattern set up that seemed to be successful and you were
1: able to like. Um, learn from that yeah in a way. well i mean i also think personality wise i have a hard time planning period right. um like it's uh it just seems like this this monumental thing to do to like try to get it all down on paper and you know try to figure out all these answers and i i you know i would just i would just have a hard time concentrating you mm-hmm. know whereas you know at least when i'm, when I'm When I'm programming, I feel like I'm always aiming, you know, I'm always aiming towards something, you Mm -hmm. know, like I'm always trying to solve a specific problem. And um, so, you know, I think of anything, it it comes down to that. Um, If I ever do something that looks like a design doc, it's usually essentially a spreadsheet, Right. which is, like, me basically coming up with some units, you know, uh-huh. and some numbers. And, like, I can kind of, you know, it's just it's just an early sketch of, like, all the different options you might see. Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, for CIFOR, we had a cork board where we popped up all the technologies and, like, connected them with string and whatnot. And, like, mm-hmm. you know, you, just, you do something like that. So, that, that works. That, yeah. I mean,
0: it's a nice public thing, and everyone can see it, and it's very lightweight. And, yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah that's interesting so did you did you have that realization while you were still at epic or no no the project died
0: and uh, there's there's i don't think this is something we talk about very much but like yeah. when projects that you're heavily invested in yeah. die it's a it's a huge emotional thing oh yeah, yeah. um and it, it it I think it probably took me like a year to get over that yeah um, and, and I was wandering around and I was you know doing some like contract stuff on the side uh, i looked look for a job at, the, at that point there wasn't a lot on the east coast yeah and then I moved ended up moving out to Colorado and doing uh, software development at that point okay um, and that was sort of like another another career of my life which was uh, building art tools for a while okay what was the what was the company it was called Anarch Okay. And they made a um a th- essentially a um think of it as a 3D version of Flash, what we would consider today Unity to be. Hmm. Okay. Um, and uh the focus was much more on um 3D user interfaces. It's still it's actually still used. Uh uh Nvidia bought the company and okay. uh they now they use it to make uh 3D interfaces for automobiles, which is a strange path. <laughs> a very strange path. It's like Whoa, I don't know. It's, yeah, you never know. You you build these things, and then then you uh, try to track them down years later, and you're like, "Whatever happened to that?" It's like, "Oh, it's very popular in the automotive industry," and you're like, yeah. "Oh,
1: really?" Now, would you have would you have continued in games if that was an easy path for you at the time, or do you feel like the there was like the emotional stress of going through a project that that ultimately you know didn't go anywhere made you feel like you wanted to? Do something more concrete for a while.
0: No, I probably would have gone into games if, if the opportunity had presented itself. Yeah. Um, the company that I was, that Anarch, was a games company originally. Oh, okay. And uh, when I was hired on there, they were basically like, they're either going to make games or they're going to go into this tools direction. And they ended up, uh, while I was there, they ended up shifting over to the tools direction. So I spent a lot of time making tools. Um, but it—it's it, often a, a, a situation that a technology company faces. You know, it's like we're making games, but we have really strong technology. Right, right. What should we do? Should we keep making games because often those games fail? Because as games do, games are very unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, should we instead go and like, can we do something with this technology? And so that was a company that that happened to, and I sort of went along for the ride for quite a while. Yeah. How did you? How did you feel about that? Like, were you? Um, this is where probably I started most of my, like, writing and uh, starting to... Th- th- writing in theory was my
1: outlet at that point. Okay. I, st- I
0: started making board games.
1: Is that uh, when you started blog- blogging? Or that, a- that would have been years later still, right?
0: Um, I started... Somewhere in there I started blogging. It, was, uh, it wasn't it was necessarily a blog at that point. Right. It was more like I was, I was creating HTML web pages and okay. manually uploading them type thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, I would... I would create board games and I would, like, write about them or I'd create board games that I'd share with a few friends. Right. And that was sort of my outlet. Yeah. And that started to – that was the point where since I didn't have a lot of resources or a lot of programming time or anything and I wasn't a programmer, that started to have, you know – in a desert, we, like, make the resources of the desert into our art, right? right? <laughs> um, and so whatever, so this sort of minimalist idea, this aesthetic started to really, like, how do we How do we get something done with very little? started right. to really, like, work its way into my
1: brain. Right. It's um, almost like starting over in a way of yeah. like, teaching yourself game design.
0: Yes. Yeah, from uh, From sort of the, the very simple basics.
1: Now, since you say you started with board games, were you inspired by sort of the board game renaissance or was it more like, uh, it was just like, you know, that's a very rough and ready way to like start doing game design is just take some cards and some markers and get going.
0: Yeah. It was, it was the rough and ready way of doing it. It like, um, I wasn't like, I wasn't super aware of the board game renaissance at
1: that point. Um, I don't know when, when did that really kick off? Uh, Mid nineties. I mean, Catan was probably around 95 or something like that. And probably Carcassonne was around then too. And, um, I mean, I don't think I saw. I don't think I saw settlers probably until around 2000. I think that stuff was happening when I was in college, but I wasn't aware of it. Right. I mean, I would always loved board games, but you know, it probably became mainstream in the sense that like we would have found out a bit about right. it around, around 2000. I would think right. I may have been aware of
0: some of the games, but yeah. that wasn't necessarily like a huge inspiration, like. I when I was a kid I used to do a lot of woodworking so mm-hmm. woodworking was a thing so uh, like my first attempt to make board games like it wasn't modular little pieces it was like let's go and figure out like I want this particular like things resting on top of other things mechanics so I would go and I would like hand craft these little wooden pieces you know that were rather over overly intricate for their purpose because it was almost The act of craft was almost as important as the design itself at that point to me. Right. Uh, And then I realized, like, oh, the craft, as in the process of doing it, the craft part of this exact wooden piece is not that necessary for the game to function. Sure. So it sort of, like, forced me to, like, come to these realizations
1: about what was actually important. So how, how do you feel like the game the board games you were designing back then how do they stand up are they they're not that great. They're not great. Okay. They're not that great.
0: Um they're playable. Mm-hmm. Um I look back on them and I can spot like all sorts of errors like you know how the ending works and how mm-hmm. you know the, the end game isn't as all that interesting. There's a little too much chaos going on here, you know. They they we overload the player with a little bit too much information at this stage. Think, things like that. So uh I don't know if it's uh I think it's good that I can actually spot the issues more readily
1: now. Right. But,
0: yeah. Hmm.
1: Did you at the at the time did you have a sense that like you wanted what did you think you were doing exactly like did you have a sense that like I'm I'm be trying out these ideas and maybe I'll find one there'll be a good game and I'll get it published or like this is like I'm like when you're making your tile sets back when you it's were it's exactly a kid. like
0: when I was making my tile sets like. Um, uh, For me, there's always been a a certain aspect of creativity, which is just something that I have to do. Uh, I feel happy when I do it. I enjoy doing the process. um, And it doesn't really matter um, if other people see it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, I may, like, share it with people to justify it, but I just end up doing it naturally. But what I found, and uh, this has ended up eventually being why I went back into games, was I found I, was, I, I felt I was living this sort of dual intellectual life, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, like split personalities or, or, or your, secret, your secret private life. And I was spending so much time thinking about games and passionately, like, making these things that no one really saw. And then I would go off and uh, I would go to a company where, you know, it's like uh, the issues were completely completely and utterly different. It was more like startup, how do we make money, you know, uh, with this art software Right, right. Um, and, uh, that when I finally got back into
1: games, it was like, oh, I can just be myself right. now. Yeah. can, um, you know, like I can express myself in the thing that I do with most of my time. Right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So is this when you went to Microsoft? Is this yep. When? I okay. went to
0: Microsoft at a certain point. Um, and, um, I ended up making art tools there as well. They were trying to make a, basically a com- competitor to Adobe. Okay.
1: Um,
0: they were really worried about Flash, ironically, at the time. Right. Um, because Flash was this ubiquitous platform that everyone was making stuff on, and yep. then uh, a, a, a wide variety of platforms conspired to kill Flash. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people have been trying to kill Flash over the years. Yeah. Um. Um, and, uh, yeah, Adobe did the best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, uh, once I was at Microsoft, I'm like, you know what? I, I sort of came to that personal realization where I kind of need to unify these these split personalities. And uh, I went over and started working at MGS. Okay,
1: yeah, All right. Was that a was that a hard transition to? try to accomplish within the company or was that no it was, it was
0: relatively easy um it was, there was a job opening and i right. said all right i applied for it and ended up being on that team
1: okay what was the what was the job and the team
0: it was it was a it was a design job um the uh the team was called prime time and they were the main one they're known for is a game called one versus 100 okay the, the general mandate it was sort of this like um it's an interesting problem uh they wanted to get mass concurrent games right so the the dream uh summary of it was a million people playing it playing like a game show simultaneously right um, and 1 versus 100 had some of that. They'd present the question, and everyone would answer it at the same time. From a networking perspective, it was a hellish technical challenge. Right. Um, because it just imagine everyone hitting your
1: server simultaneously,
0: and you're encouraging
1: that. So so how did that – I don't remember the detail. How did that game work exactly? So 100 people would be logged on or whatever to a specific game instance. Yeah. And a question would come up. Yeah. You'd all hit your the button within a certain period of time, I assume. Yeah. And then what would happen? Um, and it was a.
0: Um, I'm trying to remember what the mechanics on that. I was actually on a second team for that. Okay. Um, but the uh, there was there was the there was the one, and the one was answering the same questions that the hundred were. And if the one, who's go- the one? The one was this the single person who was up on stage,
1: which rotated.
0: So you you basically got a chance to be the one. They they selected someone to be the one. Okay. And there was this escalating um, rewards curve, and the more they got right as they ha- went up, mm-hmm. um, oh, that's 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 how it worked. The more the the, um, the more the one uh, got, the higher the pot got. Okay. Um, now the one the the one hundred, mm-hmm. um, they were also trying to get things right. Mm-hmm. However, if they got anything wrong, they were knocked out. So it started to be... They were knocked out of the 100. They were knocked out of the 100. So the 100 started out at 100 people, and then as people got things wrong, mm-hmm. you got to see that group shrink smaller and smaller and smaller. Hmm. And at any point, the, the one could just take the money and run. Right. However, if, if the um, one was knocked out and the remaining people um, survived, then they would split the pot. Okay. so it was a it was a strange like race type thing and there were some powers that you could do um, uh, it was all about drama game shows are not about gameplay they're about drama yeah sure so converting that to a game show was actually a, to, to, a, to a video game was actually a
1: tricky problem the team team did a great job on it yeah yeah it's an interesting yeah. concept um, yeah. so you were working on a, a different game though? yeah
0: we, we were working on a trivia game that ended up not shipping yeah. Um, but uh, yeah that, that was a you know, had we had a we had a team and we were running with it and it was all good. Okay. Um, and but, what sort
1: of work were you doing? Like you I mean, uh, we were doing design work. I was like, doing design work, so it was more that, like it
0: was um, uh, it was uh, for that type of game. It was it was uh, mechanics and it was uh, scoring systems and uh, user interface and um, I did some of the art, but we had artists as well. Um, a lot of it was like directions direction also mm-hmm. um, there was some some writing design documents a lot a lot of it so we, we ended up um, I ended up doing a, a form of design called sticky note design Okay. where the programmers would be working on something and we would talk over what the task was and we then we would basically summarize the task after we talked about it on a single sticky note and that was their design document right um, and then they would go off and do it and then, we would, I would come back when they were ready, and we would, we would play. I would play it and see where it was at, and uh, and that I actually use an, a, a version of that at uh, SpryFox right now. Okay uh, because it lets me be a single designer on a, a lot of different features right and give like here's the system that needs to be implemented here's the problems with it how do we iterate on it quickly in a lightweight fashion
1: and I assume it's it limits you from over designing the, cons- the solution you know it's yes. like if, I guess if it has to fit on a, on a you know a sticky note then you know, yeah. kind of like Twitter limits people from going yeah. overboard. You yeah. know, it would it's be kind of useless if you know people could write as much as they wanted, right? Yeah. Um,
0: so, yeah. Okay. and now I don't actually use sticky notes anymore, but I try to keep my feedback to something that you know people can. This is what I'm working on. These are the steps. These are the few things that we're we're concerned with. Right. Um, and uh, it really, it's a, it's a way of of uh, having some sort of aesthetic input into a, into a thing um, when. Ultimately, when, on many features, the programmer has immense aesthetic control over, over the mechanics of a game. Um, and so by, by getting in there and being able to talk about the systems and say, is it going to work this way, and uh, iterating
1: quickly with them. That's an interesting phrase. You said that the programmer has immense aesthetic control over the systems. Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah, yeah because like, ultimately like, the game is actually the code. Yes, right? absolutely. And there's, absolutely. there's all these, like, micro decisions that maybe they're not even aware they're making a decision yeah. that, that leads the game a certain way. I think that's that's a very important, you know, observation.
0: Yeah. Um, it's, it's huge. It's huge. It's like every game has these thousands of little decisions, and you can say, like, you can take the best idea, and if it's implemented in one of the many wrong ways, it mm-hmm. just becomes crap, right? It's destroyed. Um, and that that fast iteration with somebody can help catch a lot of those things. But um, I think of all the games that I make, I mean they are ultimately partnerships. They're, right. you know you're working with someone who has their own like I try to, I try to work with experienced game developers simply because they they have that aesthetic sense and actually tend not to make a lot of the mistakes that a, a new new programmer might do. Right,
1: right. Uh, who's merely who's merely programming? <laughs> right, right. right, right. So what? What I mean, things at Microsoft happens for all sorts of reasons. Was there something interesting about how that project got canceled, or was it just that's just one of those things that happens at um, Microsoft?
0: Um, yeah, Microsoft, Microsoft has reorgs and yeah. uh, right. political willpower,
1: and there's so it's not necessarily some core problem with the, the development or the design or whatever. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to
0: tell in that type of environment. It was a very chaotic environment. Yeah. Um, and so I, I ended up making a lot of designs at that time. Um, so it wasn't just one project. There was actually a lot of, like, around the same time, like, in parallel, uh, Lost Garden, my blog, was going on. Okay. And I was running uh, design challenges where I was giving people design ideas, and uh, people were making them. People mm-hmm. were making these games. Um, and so I would interact with them and like some of them actually started taking off and becoming actual games. Um, and, uh, so I sort of had this, I had my Microsoft, you know, uh, publisher designer role hat. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then at the same time I had, um, my indie projects that were taking off. Right. Um, and. Over time, I realized that the indie projects were much more satisfying than
1: the uh, the big company projects. Okay, and what do those indie projects look like normally? Like you were, you had an idea and you proposed so, it, and you found you know someone else was interested in it. and yeah, pretty much. Um, I would go and I would write up a simple
0: design document, um, and my bribe was that I would add, I would add art to it. Mm-hmm. I would say, here's a set of art. And then here is a design document. So one of them was a very simple one called Fishing Girl, Mm -hmm. where you catch fish. Right. Um, And uh, um, like five or six people ended up making that. Okay. Um, And different uh, versions of that. Different different versions. It was (laughs) like a learning project. It was like, hey, um, I I had a I had an interest. How much did they vary? Um, quite a bit. Yeah. Quite a bit. Um, it, it depended. Like you so. What I noticed was that if someone just implemented the design directly, mm-hmm. it wasn't a very fun game. Right. Um, but I knew, I like at this point, I had been doing board games, and I knew the initial design is usually crap anyway. Right. Um, however, what if they worked with me and I iterated with them? Then the design tended to converge, and there was something interesting that resulted. Okay. So at that point, I like I was very much thinking of design as this active process yep. uh, where you try to converge upon something as opposed to it. it I was far past the upfront design right. thought at that point. Right, you were starting to see how iterative design worked. Yes, in the process. You know? Yeah, um, and uh, and this was this was the era of Flash and Flash portals, and so like some fishing girl would go out and get a million million players, and that was like woohoo, you know. Yeah. Uh, very satisfying.
1: Um, so, you know. did you see Lost Garden at this time as a blog or more of a way to organize these projects? Like what um, was La- its mission at this point?
0: Lost Garden has always been an opportunity for me to think about design. Okay, um, it's like I'm thinking about this stuff. I need like by writing it down, I actually tend to organize my thoughts. Mm-hmm. So, the fact that people read the, read the site is wonderful, but that's not the f-
1: the reason why it exists. Right? Yeah. Um, well, I see there's, there's kind of a thread there in the fact that, like, you're going to do this work that's interesting and creative to you, whether there are other people, you know, yeah. consuming it or not. <laughs> right, right. And uh, it, it's it's nice in a lot of ways that now we're in an age where there can – I'm sure it's very nice to have it read and get comments back and yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, you're very self-driven to do, um, you know, this type of stuff. Yes, so. yeah. Yeah,
0: it's uh, – I mean, in some ways – Game design and making games is... I, I, I've never considered myself part of a gamer culture. Okay. Um, growing up in Maine, we didn't have that culture, right? Going sure. all the way back. And so it's always been games are something that you do because you find it in, intrinsically interesting mm-hmm. as opposed to because I'm part of some tribe or this was a nostalgic th- aspect of my life. Um, it, in the early 90s 80s games were this frontier yeah it was if you can do if you can master technology and art and uh, all these crazy elements and like you can go and you can build this like future type that no one has seen before right um Now, now I talk to a lot of folks, and they're like, they were gamers, and they like enjoyed it, and then they want to make something like the experience they had as a child. Sure. Um, And it's a very different type of motivation. It's not a forward-looking motivation. It's a. It's almost like a. A Recreation or. Yeah, it's almost like it's not necessarily a backward-looking one, but it's a. um, It's there's there's a thing that people do, and I want to be part of it. Yeah. Um, which is not necessarily where, where I feel like I came from.
1: Mm. Well, what would, so what would you, you know if you, if you could sum it up? Like why <laughs> like why do you want to make games? Like what is the what is that drive?
0: My motivations have changed over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, it was you know this sort of like self directed thing, and uh, these days I'm immensely fascinated by how games impact large groups of people. And it's almost become a, an intellectual curiosity about how we can use games to like bring people together to like make the world a better place yeah. um, And that was definitely a huge part of how why we f- uh, founded Spry Fox right uh, so that you know we, we say making happiness and that's like that's the goal that's the target yeah um, And I don't know if we're very good at it yet, but uh, that's that's the the, the the larger picture the larger. Yeah.
1: That's interesting, and that's a yeah. huge—that's a huge part of my motivation as a game designer. Yeah. Even if I didn't start that way, was to just see how games affect people and how they respond to it, and how it brings them together, and especially how it brings mod teams together. And oh, like yeah! Create, allows this creativity build on top of your own game. Like that's—that's that's a really wonderful thing to experience. Um, cool. All right. Well, so what's the so after after you, you know, your first project with Microsoft? You know, how it turned out? What what happened after that? Oh, um, purgatory.
0: Okay. (laughs) Um, Which sometimes happens at Microsoft. Uh, The, you know, multiple, like... A year plus of reorgs mm-hmm. and like uh, projects started up that were canceled short term later and yeah. changing management, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the whole time, the thing that was keeping me sane was these indie projects yep. that were happening, yep. and they just kept getting bigger and bigger. You know, like uh, we we had a game called Bunny at the time that had you know several million people playing it, and then there was a game called Steambirds that had sure. uh, yeah. you know fifteen million people play it, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So um, how
1: did how did Steambirds uh, emerge like uh that'd be int- because that's uh, I mean that's I, that's a good game. i very I admire that no. game and it'd be li- like to hear some more about that.
0: So uh I'm trying to remember the exact story at this point. So um Andy Moore had gone to a convention of some sort. I don't know if it was a PAX or one of those mm-hmm. and he had played um um I'm trying to rem- uh Wings of War, I think. Okay. And uh, so there's obviously like a connection there. Actually, uh, I don't know what Wings of War is. Wings, Wings of War is a turn-based um, uh, strategy game, and I, I had never played it at the time. A PC game, or uh, it's a it's a board game. Oh, board game. Okay. It's a board Great. game. I, I had never played it at the time. Uh, Andy is really into airplanes. Okay, um, and he was inspired by the idea. And you knew Andy already at this point, or was uh, this before? did I know Andy? Well, it doesn't. Um, I'm not sure if I did at that point. Okay. I, 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 at some point, I sent him a message that said we should do something together. Sure. Okay. And he had a prototype. I think it was called something like Sexy Plane, where okay. he had been inspired by this idea. <laughs> uh-huh. And it was sort of like – it was this strange sort of thing. And it, it sort of was fun, but it sort of wasn't fun. And it was this interesting type thing. hmm And – So uh, he, was, he was inspired by this board game, and then mm-hmm. he made a flash –
1: Game is that I think it was, it, was, it was
0: a flash. It was a two-player flash prototype. Okay, um, and you saw it, and I saw it, and at that point, I was like, "Okay, you know when you see something and there's there's something there, yep. but it's not it's not revealed to the world." Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, and it was that it was that that level of of prototype, and so I was uh, walking back one day, and it all kind of clicked. The interface clicked to me. I like mm-hmm. often like I look at. Uh, Games in terms of like what is what are the verbs what is the interface of the game, and I realized like oh instead of having this discrete movement that he's got we can actually do this more organic controller um,
1: and and I I, was it was his game more of like a tile based type game is that what you mean by discrete or
0: it had um, it was more move based so I'm going to like. Um, I can move to this location right here, and there's a specific location, there's specific spots. As yeah. suppose with Steam it seems one of the unique, unique things is kind of drawing the arc, right, know? right, in a very simple fashion. Yeah. Um, I also was inspired by like some of the um, aspects of, of Tyrion, the shooter. Uh, okay. You all know, right. so I, I was I was looking at going all the way back, because uh-huh. um, it's like, okay, it's a turn-based game. But it's really about shooting things, mm-hmm. and what if we have that sort of like um, that you know, you're shooting things aesthetic type thing, and power ups, and that type that type of idea. Um, so. Uh, We sort of mixed those things together and ended up, you know, finally getting the interface. And I I, I put together a a, uh, a, a mock-up of, like, what what the game should look like. And Andy started implementing that. And it was Mm. one of those development cycles where everything came together very quickly. And it started to become quite fun. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Great. So you had a nice iterative collaborative experience, like, getting that working. And then that led to, I guess, the initial Flash game, essentially? That that led to the initial Flash game, yeah. Right. Okay. Um, which just kind of spread. Um, it took off from there. There's a lot of I don't even know all the different sort of versions and formats for yeah. that game. I mean, yeah. I, you may not either. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I
0: think I know most of them. But uh, yes, it's it's all over the place. There's a Steam Birds. We ended up uh, doing a uh, a survival version of it, which is you know starting playing with uh, procedural generation, and right. uh, so that was Steam Birds Survival. We tr- we've been trying to do a multiplayer version for a while. Right. Interestingly, the multiplayer versions don't work as well.
1: Yeah. Mm. Uh, and why is that? So
0: it comes back to that uh shooter aesthetic. There mm. was something that the the one of the things that worked about Steambirds, it was very fast turns. Right. Super fast turns. So you make these little decisions, but cumulatively you are executing your sort of strategy. Now, have you have you tried multiple, these multiplayer games synchronously or asynchronously? Both. 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 Yeah. yeah. And um Asynchronously, there's just not
1: enough meat to each turn. Turns, are, there's too many turns. Yeah, yeah.
0: and uh, synchronously, you there's the pacing is off. Interesting. Yeah,
1: yeah, I can see it. I could have sort of that ticket to ride problem where like the game, the game itself is, is fine, but like in ticket to ride, like every turn you're essentially you're just drawing two cards, right? Right, right. and like a full game of ticket to ride, I don't oh, know it's probably two hundred turns. I mean, it's right. like it's a lot of turns. And if you have to wait for it to go back and forth from phone to phone to phone, it's just, yeah, it's just you know you, you want a nice meaty turn. You want what you get in Scrabble, yes, right? Like yeah, that's like the ideal like, asynchronous yeah. game where you have like a big meaty turn to take, and uh, and it means that like some game designs will work asynchronously and some won't. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, this
0: one, we were we were hoping that it, we could add enough meat to it, or you know, there's a whole bunch of different levers we were playing with at that point, yeah. and none of them really like. Yeah. they uh, were all B. They were
1: all B versions of the game, as opposed yeah. to like nailing it. I mean, I would think it could work synchronously. It's just synchronously has usually an audience problem. But what's yeah. S- synchronously? It was uh, the 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 main one we tried on that was
0: um, a uh, a short timer. And mm-hmm. everyone, it's simultaneous execution
1: of turns, right? Um, and uh, so you, you plan you plan what you're going to do, and then everyone sees it happen at the same yep. time, right?
0: And uh, which is which is sort of you know you plan what you're going to do, which is sort of how the no, the single player game yep. works. But it just the uh, single player game is just a hair faster. It's probably about twice as fast, yeah. Um, and that's enough to like be like, oh, you know, I'm really not loving this.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a reason why. I mean, that's to me, that's the just the the general max split that goes into my mind when you're talking real-time versus turn-based. is like, you're talking real-time, you're talking multiplayer, you're talking turn-based, you're talking single-player. Like, there's plenty of exceptions on both sides of yep. that, you know, lots of exceptions, but that's that's generally the way the way I think, you yep. know? Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of, like, like generally the great turn-based, or turn-based strategy games at this point are the ones that can be played asynchronously, in my opinion. Uh-huh. Like, it's hard to think of a lot of really good Synchronous play multi turn based multiplayer games. Yeah, it's I'm not trying to think of anything. Anyone um. like um,
0: I know there's a, there's a community around um, one of my friends um, Leonard Sauce does uh, Age of Wonders, okay, yeah. uh, which is sort of um, you know a masters of magic type style yep. style mm-hmm. game, and uh, they have a um, they have a synchronous turns version yep. of it where. Uh, how would you... They call it synchronous turns. It's kind of an interesting thing. It's like... Um, I think it's essentially you have action points, but everything is real-time, but you have action points.
1: Yeah. Um, and uh, they have a small... And ded- everyone will run out of action points. Like, a, everyone has to spend their action points before you pro- progress the next turn? Is that kind of... Yeah, 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 every, yeah, yeah. exactly.
0: Um, yeah. And I think there's a timer as well on that. Sure, too. Um, yeah. And they've got a small dedicated community who does that, but it's very much a we set this up we love this game we yeah. know it intimately and we'll play together yeah
1: it's not fundamentally different from civ 4 right the mm-hmm. civ 4 the multiplayer version that works best is like the simultaneous turns where you just and whoever you know, everyone can move basically at the same time right. and like it's it's actually fundamentally if you look at the core technology it's a real time game at that yeah. point it's just gating everyone yeah. to end turn at the same time very very similar systems yeah and yeah. there's again a dedicated community but it's not it's not enormous mm-hmm. um and, uh, and and then there's there's also kind of the interesting sort of pit boss community, which is the one that plays the games running on this one someone's server, and the game will last for four months, right? And with a turn every day, and people just log in and log off. So that that also, of course, is simultaneous turns. It's just like it's very unlikely two people will even be logged on at the same time. Right. Um, it's almost like an old BBS game of yeah. some sort. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, so. Well, yeah, I'm I'm fascinated by like these turn structures. We played with one in uh, Leap Day, which okay. was another game where it was real time, mm-hmm. um, but and you could but it, everyone had their own territory and they could edit the territories however they wanted. Right. Um, however, the territories were basically in this um, ninety second time loop, mm-hmm. um, and so every every action that was happening in the territory was synchronized with everyone else. And so you could actually – you could watch people build in real time, but it was, a, um, it was a sim that persisted over weeks. So people would go and build up, build up their city in one thing, and it would be in a, essentially a, that in, – inside that 90-second loop, it was just essentially static. Okay. Um, and then someone else would come by like a day later, and they would see what you had done, and mm-hmm. then they would go and they would build up like, oh, I'm going to deliver some goods to you. Right, um, and then that would be static, and then someone else would come along and like say, "Oh, you've got the goods. I'll use those and incorporate them into my design." And it was this strange, like real-time, persistent world with asynchronous play. Right. Um, that that was a that was a fun. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Fun structure.
1: Yeah.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to be explored with these type of games, and um, I think that one of the things we're probably struggling with now is. You can have. There's a lot of innovation, but I think the innovation can often push beyond what the audience is necessarily ready for. Yes. Like, um, if it takes long to explain exactly how the system works, like not just the game, but like the the actual format, it's it's a it's a challenge. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and uh, and you know what you'll often see is these these small passionate tight knit communities that you know love that thing and then it's a challenge to figure out like okay well what we what do we do with this really interesting unique mechanic at this point this unique format um Cool. So you were, working, you were working on Steambirds while you were at Microsoft? Is that right? Don't tell anyone. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I was kind of curious about it because you, know, you can kind of work on stuff on the side as long as you're not too successful. So, um, so
0: one of the interesting things about Lost Garden at that point is mm-hmm. I had, for years, Lost Garden did not have my name on it. Oh wow, really? Yeah, like I was a non- Did you have an
1: alias essentially or just just no name whatsoever? there, there was really no name. Okay. So uh, how would someone contact you? Well,
0: well, um there, there was an email, sorry, there was an email address. Right. But it was like a, you know, a generic it was a lost garden email address. Okay. So you were a mystery developer. Right. And and, and uh I I think I would still sign Dank occasionally, but okay. no one knew who Dank was. Right. Okay. Um, Addressing. And so like it wasn't there was no Urge to make a reputation or anything. Uh-huh. It was like essentially an anonymous site that. Uh, and were
1: you, I mean, you were consciously doing that because you were nervous about what might happen if, like, Microsoft. I, I, got I, I was.
0: I was. I, I was like, I didn't want. I had this thing that I really cared about, yeah. and I didn't want. St- you're you're
1: I, protective I, of it. Uh, yeah, and I didn't. It's I hard didn't to want... know how protective you should be, right? Right. Um, right. I mean, chances are Microsoft probably wouldn't care all that much, but at the same time, the, the act of even asking. Sometimes makes them care, right? (laughs) Right. Like, because you know, depending upon who you talk to, the the reflexes can be different. But yeah, that's can be a tricky situation. Yeah, Uh, and it was it was strange
0: because like I was building up a a sort of set of uh, friendships and designer conversations, and so like Andy would know who you were, right? Right.
1: Like once you started working with someone, yes. But anyway, go ahead.
0: Yeah, but um, inside of Microsoft, I was it was like. It was, I was a totally different person. Yeah. So yeah. Again with the dual life. Again with the dual life. <laughs> it's strange how that works out. That, that's actually one of the wonderful things about Spry Fox is yep. like, it's, uh, it's like, here I am, Yep. you know, I'm making games. Yep. I'll put my, I'm actually, you know, I've got one photo that I use everywhere.
1: Mm.
0: Um, and, uh, but I, you know, my name is actually on stuff and I'm willing to like meet people and talk about, you know, right. Here, here's who I, here's who I am and here's what I do. Right. Um, which is probably a strange thing.
1: So at this point, I suppose you were considering leaving Microsoft and trying to...
0: Yes, yeah. And it was just a matter of, like, uh, timing. There, there's been there's been health issues in my family, mm. and uh, Microsoft has good insurance, and sure. there's all sorts of stuff along those lines. Um, but at a certain point, it, it, uh, it all all the numbers worked out, and um, I remember
1: we were talking early on mm-hmm. in those days. Yep. Were um, you still at Microsoft then? I suppose you were. I think I was, Yeah. yeah. Uh, for for the listeners, I was also considering. This was when I was at EA, and I was also considering uh, starting my own company. And I, I didn't go that way at that time, but you know, I gave it a little bit of a go. Um, and then yeah. and then later, I saw that you know, then you and you and Dave um, yeah. took off, and that was really cool. And I was really excited for you guys. It, it
0: um, was a um, it was a a. The old man startup in a way right mm. the
1: uh, well tell us first uh, tell us how you met Dave and how this connection happened
0: so so that's
1: pretty important to the story
0: so uh, Dave Edery mm-hmm. um, so Dave Edery at that point was at uh, MIT um, doing doing some work there okay. and Dave was a Amazing networker, Dave sure. is an amazing networker. Yeah,
1: I, I don't have no idea how I originally met Dave, but you know that's that's his way. <laughs> that is his way, and
0: he's very very good at it, and it constantly impresses me. Um, and he reached out to Lost Garden. He had been reading Lost Garden. He also had a blog, and that that was there was an era there where bloggers on games talked to each other, yes. and I think that era has gone away a little bit, mm-hmm. but um, that was definitely at that time. And uh, so he said, hey, let's meet up at GDC. And so we met up at GDC. I was still, I think, I think was I, I don't even know if I was at Microsoft at that point. Because um, sp- that was before he joined Microsoft. Then. Right, yeah. Oh, and th- you're saying this might be before you joined Microsoft. It might be before oh, okay. I joined Microsoft. Okay. All right. Um, and we talked, and we kept talking on and off. And it, it ended up that he ended up going to Microsoft, and I ended up going to Microsoft. Right. Um, and we kept talking on and off about maybe we should start something up. Yep. Um, and then eventually it happened, yeah. um, and uh, he he ended up leaving Microsoft and and saying, "Oh wow, you can actually like make a living doing contracting." Right, um, that was and the that, first thing
1: he tried. Right? Yeah.
0: yeah, and that was really that was really the opening. To say like, oh, we can we can support ourselves financially while we're actually building games on the side, right?
1: So, did, so he leave, he did he leave and he started contracting, and mm-hmm. at that point, you were still at Microsoft, and at that point, I was still at Microsoft, and, and so he got he had some time to think about it, and then he thought he wanted to, um, you know, since you start a game studio, yeah, and then he talked to you, yeah, and. Uh, and then, then
0: we 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 were careful about it. We lined up some contracts. Okay. Um, so like, for
1: other people's games, essentially,
0: or uh, some some of them were for other people's games.
1: Um, he had written a book. Which on, you would call cons- like a consulting contract, not necessarily like your yes,
0: company. consulting
1: contract. Right. Yes, okay. they were not consulting not contracts. Like you're making the art for someone's game.
0: No, no, it was um, um, most of the. Um, um, Contracting that consulting that we ended up doing, contracting is probably the wrong word. Yeah, um, the consulting that we did, um, a lot of it was outside the game industry. Oh, um, okay, there. At, so, uh, some a lot of my writing gets into um, how you apply games to other concepts, how sure. game design is a broader concept than just games, right? Um, and uh, David had um, written a book on essentially serious games, that's like, right, yeah, so. There were a lot of people who were interested in games who were, wanted to know, like, how can we bring some of these techniques? And it wasn't; it was nothing; it was nothing so crass as gamification. <laughs> right, yeah. um, It was more like let's let's take these concepts of an idea and apply them to to these products or businesses in right. an interesting way. Okay,
1: um, so, so you lined up some consulting jobs, which gave you sort of the confidence to say, okay, you know, we're going to leave Microsoft. Yeah. right you, you're going to leave Microsoft, and. Um, you know and but also but to be clear your intention at this time was but ultimately we want to make some games together yes absolutely absolutely
0: and so we ended up getting a situation in a situation where we were doing consulting that paid well enough that we could spend the majority of our time on games um, and we had a structure which was a more of a, a partnership style structure where we were like I was essentially doing uh, we we it's it's almost like a hub where like David and I would work with multiple teams simultaneously, um, which is actually like this is this is sort of one of those like functional trade offs like between the like the programmer designer and the non programmer designer. Mm-hmm. Um, like the non programmer designer can't necessarily get as deep into a specific game, but right. then they can also work on multiple things at once. Right. Um, and it's, I don't know, I don't think there's one is better than the other. It's yep. just a difference in uh, logistics.
1: Yeah, I've always been very interested in, in how you guys work at SpryFox, and I've talked to Dave about this, definitely, um, in that um, I the idea of working on multiple projects at once is very appealing to me, but when I work on a game, like, I'm writing all the game code. Yeah. Right, like, I'm deep into the game, and, like, I don't think... Um, I could. I don't, I don't think I would have the time really for for multiple projects, but it's it's really interesting from a from a creativity point of view. It seems like it would be very rewarding to be able to like you know have these multiple plates spinning at a time, and like and once you're you feel like you're a little burnt out or you know the ideas are not coming on one project, you just mm-hmm. kind of slide over to the other one, and yeah. like maybe those in the back of your mind those ideas have been percolating for a while, and so now you know you feel like you're ready. Um, yeah, that's, that's exactly what happens. Um,
0: uh, I, fa- I found for myself personally, like, um, the, the easiest way to, like, fall into, like, either depression or irritation or, the, you know, a, a, cr- a lack of a, that creative state is to um, have one, uh, one project that consumes my entire life. Because mm-hmm. then my, emotion, my emotions become immensely tied to that one project. Uh, and if it's going badly, then my life is going yeah, badly.
1: That is definitely true. I can, I can definitely speak to that. If it's going good, you're you're doing great. If yeah. it's not, you know, yeah, you're yeah, you're not feeling great. Yeah,
0: and uh, by having uh, by having at least two, usually I like to have like three or four projects going at the yeah. same time. Then it's like you're you're in this land of plenty. So if one thing is going badly, then you can focus on the other thing, and it's not. And when something dies, it's not this huge emotional like loss. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 um, civilization has the same property, by the way. Okay. Um, overlapping loops. Yes, overlapping and goals. And, yeah. And, yeah. Of, of various links. Yes. And uh, so <laughs> when one stops, there's always another one that's been going on, and you can start another one. And yep. yes. Yeah. Yep. No,
1: that, that, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, so tell us about a little bit about like the early days. Like, what were what was the first couple of projects you guys tried to tackle. So the first thing we did
0: was um, there was uh, two games for the E-Ink Kindle. Yes. Uh, there was Triple Town. Right. And there was Panda Poet. Uh-huh. Panda Poet was a single-player word game. Triple Town was this um, matching building game. Yes. And uh, those came together relatively quickly. Um, we, we worked with... Um, Some wonderful people, um, Rob Morgan and uh, Hal uh, Wasserman, Mm -hmm. Um, and they, you know, the e-ink Kindles are essentially calculators. Yeah. (laughs) So it was actually it it was it was a fascinating design problem because, like, how do you design an interesting game for what can it was it was displaying stuff at like one frame per second, right? So you didn't have animation, you didn't have color, you really didn't have a lot of processing power. Um make a game for it, yeah um, and you've got this little nub like controller that doesn't actually you know it's yeah. not it's not a really touch air or anything like that,
1: yeah, so it's pretty remarkable because i I consider i, I triple down I think is a, a a a great game you know it's uh, it's, it's definitely one I love a lot uh and um it's pretty remarkable that you're able to make a great game on this new limited device right? I, I think it perhaps helped okay um because um,
0: it, it, it really uh, forced me to boil everything down. Okay. Um, so I, I wanted to get a sense of progression in. I wanted to get the sense of exploration in. I wanted there to be randomness and chance. Uh, I wanted people to build up things and feel passionate about the things that they had built. And so, uh, but then I wanted there also to be a tension and a threat. Mm. And so how do you get all those pieces in in, um, in this very simple minimalist uh, world? I've always thought of Triple Town as initi- as as a strategy game. Sure. Um, people don't tend to see
1: it that yeah, well, way. Well I remember when I first I think I first heard you describe it, you it was like it was a match three civilization game and I yeah. was like, All right. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll see how, how this is. Uh, well tell us a little bit about like the very beginning then of like how that worked. Like what was your what was your initial conception of- the,
0: the initial conception was so there was a game called Grow. Okay. which is in a completely different genre mm-hmm. and this is mere inspiration. Um, and grow is a game where I, I really liked the tactile element of grow, which is a game where you basically you have five objects and you can put them onto, the the screen one at a time and every time you put one onto the screen like you put a seed onto the screen and then you put water onto the screen and that causes a plant to grow Mm -hmm. and then you go and you put a person on the screen and the person tends the plant Mm -hmm. and the plant goes into a house or something bizarre and surreal Mm -hmm. Um, and there was this very simplistic element of by putting something down Mm -hmm. um, in a particular order you get something else Okay, and that was very appealing to me. Right, um, and I said, "What could we do with that?" And I came up with a design. I was I was working with a programmer, uh, Andre uh, mm-hmm. Um Speelings? Sorry, I'm m- mangling his name. I apologize, Andre. <laughs> um, and um, he did an initial prototype, and uh, we went back and forth several times, and it got
1: simplified. And some of the matching stuff. And by the way, when you say prototype at this point, like, what does that what does that mean exactly? Like a a, a prototype. So, so. Well, I mean, literally. Like, was this a little like? Were you working in in Flash at this point? Just because you're familiar with it? Okay, Flash. That's that's yeah. Um, And uh, it's usually no art
0: or programmer art. I think we were using some of my free art that we used. Sure. And uh, it was it was like a side project. It was like a one night, two night Mm -hmm. thing, sort of. And. and that's where, like, there were a lot of mechanics that I, I we were exploring that that didn't quite work. Mm-hmm. And then there was one. What what didn't work?
1: Like, what were the dead ends?
0: <sighs> some of the dead ends were um, A plus B of a different types equals C. Okay. Um, and that so, th- that doesn't work because which we would kind of think of like
1: like in crafting in some of the other games. Yeah, but anyway, go ahead.
0: But people couldn't keep it in their heads. Mm-hmm. Like, they couldn't yeah. understand like. Um, they can understand that like these two different things go together in a particular way. Well, there's way. a
1: positional aspect to Triple Town which yes. you don't see in normal crafting games where you just have a pile of these different things and then you combine them and like that's that's fairly simplistic whereas I, is that was that kind of the issue you think or um it's so
0: it was a lot of these early prototypes you, the feelings are very fuzzy, right? Yeah. W- with that one it was very much like you've got lots of different types of objects, and, like, when you're putting A plus B together Mm -hmm. equals C, well, what if you have a D? Does D plus A equal something? And if it doesn't, then you're like, that's awkward. But then the combinatoric possibility space explodes, and there's all, like, as soon as you have five objects, you know, you've got all these interconnections between them. Right. And So
1: what you're talking about is that, yeah, there's two options here. Either is the game is very mysterious, yep. and it's going to be surprising the player, yeah, and that's that's okay. That's one one extreme direction to go. Yep. Or like, which is basically where you guys ended up. Like, it was important that the game fit inside the player's head completely. Right,
0: right. And so, so um, to a large degree, I mean, Triple Town is a lucky lucky accident, right? Because mm-hmm. um, you you say this doesn't work, let's try this, and uh, it's like okay. A plus B plus uh, a, a plus A plus A yeah. <laughs> equals equals B, yeah. and now you've you've uh, sort of taken like the idea there was more like it wasn't necessarily inspired by it was actually wasn't at all inspired by match threes. It was mm-hmm. more of um, like you know you know sets. Like what happens if we have a set? Like you can have you can have uh, uh, a set of different all different types, or you mm-hmm. can have a set of some different types, or you can have a set of all equal types. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of getting back to, you know, fundamentals. Yeah.
1: Well, what's, what's especially nice about that is, like, that formula can extend forever. Like, you don't have to teach, yeah. because, you know, A plus, A plus A plus A equals B, and B plus B plus B equals C, and dot, dot, dot. Right. Like, people know at that point, like, well, okay, if I ever get up to E, then E plus E plus E equals F, yes. and so on. And, like, uh, there is no variation there. Like, it's just it's just an extension, you know.
0: Yeah. Um, And then the other piece was it was uh, Andre actually added this in, and it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, He added random black spots that appeared on the board. Okay. And so the basic Triple Town game, and there's people who have copied it and not realized this, the basic Triple Town game is a little boring. Okay. Like, there's a there's a recursive pattern that you can follow. You just follow, sure. Yeah. Um. But where the magic comes into the game is when you add the random black spots. That when it, it messes with you. It messes with you, or it's randomness. Yeah. Um. And uh, so, is that what became the
1: rocks at that point, or is that, that more that's what the ended bears?
0: up? That ended up morphing into the bears. That the the ninja bears are essentially the random black spots. Right. Because they they're the black spots would appear on spots and say you can't move here any longer right um the bears came later when we did the uh e-ink version of it um at that point it was it was a rough prototype and Mm -hmm. it was like oh some of the fundamentals were there but it was not by no means a game
1: okay um wait so to be clear the black spots were there at this point the black spots were there at this point. And yeah. you, did you just leave them as black spots until you came up with the concept of bears, or was it something different? It, yeah, they were just black spots. Okay. Yeah, right. it was like, well... Thematically, you didn't necessarily know exactly what to do with it, I guess. Right. Or you and, thought it was okay. Yeah,
0: or, and the theme of uh, Triple Town has actually morphed over time as well. Okay. Um, so What
1: was it early on?
0: Like, so initially it was sort of random art, and then it was just abstract in many ways. Oh. Hmm. Um there was, a, I think we were using. I think we did have trees and stuff at that point. Um, and then for um, for the e-ink version, it there was it was very much a building game. So we came up with the concept of trees and houses and you know castles and those type of things. Um, the um, bears were something that we added in. So one of the problems with the random black spots mm-hmm. is this kind of dumb, um, and it was like, it's like, how do I give players more control over over things? Right. Uh, and so then started borrowing some stuff from. I'm always fascinated by territories and capturing territories and um, like go like systems or reversey like systems, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's that's where. Um, that's where the bears came from. So I wanted something that had slightly random movement, but it was predictable. It's only going to move into an adjacent space, mm-hmm. but then you can you can learn to control it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that now you've got two tasks: you've got a building task, no, and you've got a control task. Yeah. And uh, now, now this tension. Now there's uh, an interesting like choice you end up having to make. Right.
1: So that's a that was a pretty big shift then from when it was just a black well. So what would the black dots do? Did they function like the bears at that point? No, they they wouldn't have. They they but moved they, didn't. They, they, they
0: moved randomly from spot to spot. So you'd have a black spot in in a. So local, they were literally more like the ninja bears. They were literally more like the ninja bears. So we okay. kept them in. Right. Um, we t- we there was we have a lot fewer now. They're much rarer. Yep. The other bears are more common. Right. Um, we the, the, a lot of it was like. There's fun in the initial prototype, and then how do you turn that into something that's more than, like, 15 minutes of fun or 30 yeah. minutes of fun? So
1: can, you think you can describe how you made the the leap to bears? Like, getting getting these, these little guys to appear, they're going to thwart you, but they can be controlled, and you, they can be even combined, right? Like, right. once you turn into, into graves That's a that's a pretty important development in the design. Yes. Do you think you can remember exactly how, how that happened?
0: So, yeah, um, it... It's 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 a it's, it's sort of like you're thinking through it, and there's a couple of steps along the way. Um, so the first one is, okay, randomness and things that – the, the block, black spots are us important. That okay. let, told us that randomness and things that screw up the pattern yeah. are matter. Yeah. However, the problem with the current solution is it's too random, yeah. um, and you can't control it. So mm-hmm. I like things that like are – what is the antagonist? In the game what is the thing that's the pressure that's pushing against you as the player right and then I want it to be I want to be able to tune the strength of that okay how painful it is to the player how that pushes back on them but then I also want a way for the player to overcome that okay um, and push back against that pressure mm-hmm. um, and so the Bears were a way of saying well we're, let's let's put an object on the screen that moves a little bit mm-hmm. as opposed to a lot right. So now I can control where it's located, um, and then how do I get the player to push back at it so it doesn't overwhelm the player? And then it was like, I, you know, I, that's where the the, the, um, so the surrounding type mechanic came in, so I borrowed the surrounding mechanic. Was
1: it almost, I almost imagine, literally, like once you had them surrounded, well, what do they do now? Right. Well, maybe they die. Yes, is that kind of what it was? Yeah, <laughs> that, that's that's very much what it was.
0: And you can you can actually see some awkwardness in the design at that point mm-hmm. um, because yes, they they collapse down, um, but then then the the question is well, well, what are the rules that they collapse down on? Mm-hmm. You know, like and, it, and we ended up saying well, well there's this youngest bear that you, that uh, of the set. What's the differentiation between the, oh, the bears I'm, in the set?
1: Is that visible to the player? It really?
0: is visible now. For the first versions, it wasn't visible. How is it visible? Actually, I guess I uh, we, we darkened that there a little bit. Oh, ah, wow, that's pretty subtle. It is pretty subtle, <laughs> and that that's an
1: awkwardness in the
0: design. Yeah, that, that something really that
1: never quite got rounded out. Yeah.
0: Yeah, huh. expert players deal with it. They sure. deal with it. You know, it's, but.
1: I mean, it's. I don't think it's all bad to have these elements in a game that you mm-hmm. can you can fully enjoy the game without noticing. And then yeah. once you do, there's a little extra something there for right. you. I think right. that's, that's fine, even if you're maybe not completely happy with it. Yeah. I um, think what's interesting about that is um, the concept of as you're exploring a design, there's sometimes certain developments that. Almost feel like you didn't design them, but you discovered them. Right,
0: and I, I it, would say I would say the 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 initial matching and turning into a new thing felt much more like a discovery.
1: Yeah, uh, um, and yeah, and, like the idea of like once the bears are surrounded. Well, what you well, I guess that's it, right? Like yeah. that also seems kind of like that concept of yeah. you know just sort of natural. Like if you're trying to follow things out to the natural. Con- Natural conclusion. Sometimes that happens. Yeah. Um, like I often th- think of like Tetris as like the ultimate game design that really was like felt like it was discovered. Right. You know, as opposed like I, I almost imagine, um, you know, if if there are other alien worlds out there, <laughs> if there was one game on you know on Earth that does exist somewhere else, it's probably Tetris, right? Yeah. Um, but I don't know. but the Tetris was actually based off an
0: earlier problem uh, earlier puzzle mm. there was uh there was uh i forget how it worked but uh there was other there was other puzzle-like activities involving these uh what are they tetron- tetron- I, yes, I never, something like that yeah. i never say the name well um and then he was he really liked that and then he ended up using that in a very elegant and unique way right right um but uh I, I think a lot of the we borrow from math a lot sure yeah, yeah. um Cool. Math and geometry.
1: Um, So let me see. I'm trying to think what else would be interesting to – so one thing I definitely know I wanted to get to with you, and Triple Town is probably the natural place to pivot for that, is talking about business models. Yes. Talking about free-to-play games. Yeah. Paid games. Because you kind of went through some interesting experiences with Triple Town – trying to, you know, figure out what to do with this game. Yeah. You know, should you sell it? Should it be free? What should we sell inside of it? Which is a whole another design challenge. Um, and so probably the right way to start is just like what did what were your guys' initial um what did you guys think initially and you know i guess help help film the listener like what yeah. was your experiences
0: so um we we looked at triple town and and one of the the goals for it was to build an evergreen game and we were highly inspired by the business model of popcap right and so we said, "Oh, wow! They've got this evergreen game that's selling into a casual market. And you know, how do they do it? Well, they have—they sell it for a fixed price, and they make lots of money. And yeah, yeah. let's do that. Mm-hmm. And so we tried that on on um, on the Kindle, on the e-ink Kindle. And uh, you know, there was there was distribution issues that what that happened there. Sure. They weren't really supporting that right. as a games platform. Right. Um, and then we're like, well, where do we take it to next? Like, it might work on mobile, it might work on PC, it might work on Facebook. Um, at that point, Facebook was big. Um, and we're like, what the heck? Like, we can do any of these. We're in this position of we've got a game, we think it's fun, we can put it anywhere. Right. So let's literally roll the dice and put it on Facebook. Right. And, you know, there's maybe a little, you know, calculation there, but okay, on Facebook, there aren't. Premium games. Yes, yeah, there's no way to really sell a game on Facebook. So let's try a free-to-play model. Right.
1: Um, now would a would a would a mobile version have been viable at this point? It would have been. There, it would there have was been. was an app store at this point. And yeah, and yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but we just. Do you feel like you made the right choice at that moment? Um, it ended
0: up all working out very well. Sure. So, um. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know how it would have... It's one of those unknowables how it would turn out otherwise. Yeah. Um, The... So what we did learn is that mobile is a big bang launch in Mm -hmm. many ways. Yeah. Like you get one opportunity to launch your game... and if you get featured and people love you, fall in love with your game, then there's a long tail to that. Yeah. Um, but if you, if you don't, then it can sink like a rock. Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps by launching on Facebook, it allowed us to tune the game to the point that we could launch it on mobile more easily. Right. It's hard to say. It's mm-hmm. really hard to say. Yeah.
1: Um, it's hard to, hard to second guess. Yeah. I mean, it very much has the feel of a mobile game to me like the type of games I expect to play on my phone, on my iPad. Um, And uh, certainly at the time, Facebook was this huge concept that was like just bearing down on everyone. I, 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 I remember, I think it was... Especially, I think it was the 2010 GTC where it was just like Facebook mania, and it probably was some that was probably sometime around then. Yeah, um, yeah. So,
0: and there was there was also so so one of the uh, inspirations for business model was um, Bejeweled Blitz, sure, which was doing very well, which was theoretically doing very well. We didn't have any numbers on it or anything. Sure, and, that's, and, <laughs> I guess, uh, <laughs> I guess it's true. It's theoretical. Yeah, surely uh, it must be doing well, but uh, um, and. Uh, so so we said well, and th- the other thing I I really liked is going BDS door games had these energy systems that yeah. I thought were actually uh, fair. Like yeah. everyone complains about energy systems, but I go back and I look at these multiplayer games that essentially used energy systems to ensure that everyone you know had the same number of action points and you know could was it was it was a fair game because of the you know same constraints placed on everyone, and I thought like oh like we can use we can use energy in a way that is more of a like it's a very addictive game what if people have a certain amount of play time and uh, that's it and if they want to pay for more they can but you know they probably won't um and then we can maybe sell some power-ups and items let's try a virtual item store mm. so all these things were the 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 logic was very much like Let's look at some examples out there. Let's look at our own past history that, of things we've liked, and let's run some experiments.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so Triple Town has very much been a bed
1: for free-to-play experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Because early on, um, there was some big change you made early on, right? Like the, you were unlocking turns. Right. Yeah. Like could, oh well. Hold on. I'm probably Tur- thinking of the mobile version. No. No. Is that in, how it worked in, on Facebook in the, in the well? Facebook
0: version, there were turns, and uh, the turns slowly recharged over right. time, which was the energy concept you're kind yeah. of talking about. And and you could bu- you could buy more if you you wanted to. You could you could buy more more turns, um, and then you could buy like special items and stuff that were theoretical power ups. Um, and it worked. It made it, you know it had it had money. This was also our first like real introduction to. Like, what is retention? What is Mm -hmm. ARPU? What is, you know, all this sort of stuff. And uh, um, it turns out that it didn't do great on Facebook. We Mm -hmm. got, like, one of the things we never really mastered for Triple Town on Facebook was user acquisition.
1: Sure. That's, like, one of the core things of why people made Facebook games to begin with was that viral spread. And we hit Facebook a little past the, like,
0: free time. Mm -hmm. Um, And we weren't necessarily the most viral game in the world. Right. Nor were we necessarily willing to, to do that. To push this. those buttons necessarily, yeah. Yeah, yeah it didn't it – didn't, every time that came up, we were like, yeah, let's not do that, yeah. um, which just happens to a lot of indie developers. Yeah, and it's,
1: it's tough seeing all essentially this sort of free money get picked up mm-hmm. off the ground as Facebook kind of dropped it there. <laughs> right. And, but at the same time not feeling like you would be willing to do the stuff it takes to kind of pick yeah. up that money and you know it's you, sometimes you wonder if you know it's a good idea to even be on a platform like that if you're not really if you're not really going to be able to like play maybe a strange analogy would be like playing baseball during the steroid era right you know where yeah. like is it does it even make sense to be a baseball player where you're not doing that if you feel like everyone else is you know like what you know Maybe we should pick another different sport. I don't right, know. <laughs> right.
0: Um, and so what we ended up doing is we ended up uh, having a publishing deal on Facebook with Disney, okay. because Disney really liked the game, yeah, and they were looking for you know product at that time, and uh, we uh, we realized we can't we're as a small team we don't have the analytics we don't have the the knowledge and so on and so forth. Ultimately, it, I don't know if it worked out all around. But at that same time, we, re- we retained the rights for the mobile version. Right. And we said, hey, let's run another experiment, yeah. and let's put it out on mobile. Okay. So what changed going into the mobile version? Um, we the, the main thing that changed going into the mobile version is we ran an experiment where we said uh, all you can eat. Like, buy unlimited turns right. for a fixed price. And spend, it was... It was, I guess, a little high early, right? It was right. Like seven dollars or something. It was seven, seven, like seven ninety nine, something it, like is Is eight that. bucks
1: to it, like unlock, unlock the rest, you know, uh, unlimited play. Yeah.
0: Um, and eventually, we ended up settling. I think it's on three ninety nine right. now. And that's that right
1: there was an interesting moment to begin with because eight dollars is not necessarily a lot, and you you know you were being straightforward about what you were offering. Yep. And there was plenty for the people to play free. But it just struck a lot of people the wrong way. Yes, people were very upset at at, at
0: spending eight dollars on a, on, a, on a game. This is, by the way, an audience that in another era, in the in the casual down PC downloadable era, would have spent twenty dollars right. on a game like Bejeweled and been completely and utterly happy. Yeah. Um, now in the mobile era, like spending eight dollars. On 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 this uh, roughly the same sort of concept mm-hmm. uh, was
1: ludicrous. Uh, it's the mobile market is a hard one, really, for me to wrap my head around because um, there is this resistance to paying th- something that's less than ten dollars for something that's fairly significant. Yet at the same time, there are companies making hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. off of players who are spending thousands of dollars on games, it's this bizarre disconnect in my mind, yes. right? Yeah. Um, I, I haven't been able to like really make it, make it make sense in my head.
0: I think there's a lot of free content out there, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people who are very vocal about you know, the slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Like, as a consumer, you don't want the slippery slope of prices increasing right mm-hmm. you're going to you're going to if, if you can yell at somebody you're going to yell at them and you're right. going to yell as loud as you possibly can and it really doesn't take that many people yelling mm-hmm. when you're talking about millions upon millions of users to make a substantial noise right um, and but then we also see things like one of the reasons why we drop the price is we make more money at that price yeah
1: of course I mean if so, ultimately that makes it the right decision right I mean yeah. regardless of what people are saying um, and the fact that People will be less angry is like a nice bonus. So, yeah. um, one one of the amusing things about all
0: this is people hold up uh, Triple Town on mobile as a good example of free to play, right? And ultimately, what Triple Town on mobile is is a shareware program.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: It's sure. there, there's a there's try a, it and
1: then try it and then buy it, it. Yeah. and
0: that's that's essentially what it is, and it happens to be a you know three ninety nine purchase as opposed to a ninety nine cent purchase, but it's very much a shareware trial sort of uh, program.
1: Right now, people can there is sort of essentially an unlimited amount of money they could spend on some of these little bonuses, and perks, but they don't. Right? They just don't. It does, they just that's don't. That's not something that. It's that's, yeah, that's, that's you know, paid off.
0: People people will spend like they may spend a dollar or two after after they purchase on limited terms, it turns if they really want to. But for the most part, like uh Triple Town is not necessarily a strong whale based yeah. uh, uh, revenue stream.
1: Now games have there are plenty of games that are making a lot of money out there selling similar type things. Mm-hmm. what do you think like why did that not happen for Triple Town, do you think?
0: Um we tried a lot of very, vari- a lot of different types of objects. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it is perhaps we were too generous, mm-hmm. like we were generous with currency and things like that. Um, some of it may be the type of game that Triple Town is. Right. Uh, Triple Town's design is actually uh, surprisingly difficult to create variations on. Right.
1: I was about to, because in my head I was kind of comparing Triple Town to say Candy Crush Saga, yep. right, which is all about levels and you know progression and you know some are going to be very hard and some are going to be very easy and that's where a lot of the monetization comes from whereas with triple town you're playing the same game yep. over and over again and if you didn't buy some perk last time why would you buy it this time mm-hmm. right um i mean i could see why maybe maybe you're in this specific situation where it would really help to to have something but at the same time you know you're just going to be starting a new game as soon as you finish this game, right? Yeah, um,
0: yeah. Uh, like this, like I, I, I make a distinction between um, multiplayer free to play mm-hmm. and single player free to play, mm-hmm. and single player free to play is almost always motivated by content. Right. Um, and Triple you Town get more is. Content. Yeah, you, you're like either grinding for content or you're frustrated by a lack of content or whatever it may be. And then you either unlock or like get to the content faster or whatever the technique may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and Triple Town ultimately does not have a ton of content. Mm-hmm. Um, there are like 10 objects that you can end up seeing that are interesting. Mm-hmm. And people feel so happy when they see, you know, a golden floating castle. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, my God, my life is made because of this this moment. But I can't even imagine, like, selling that moment. Yeah, sure. Um, it's mm-hmm. not, not reasonable. Right. Um, now, in multiplayer games like Realm of the Mad God that we had going, like, that's a whole different space, and there's so much more opportunity to uh, – and you're not necessarily monetizing content – you're monetizing opportunities for people to work together, be together, enjoy social experiences together. Mm-hmm. It's a much richer, richer field
1: for free to play. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting game. We should probably address a little bit um, because that did have, um, it did have um, some success, and mm-hmm. uh, and definitely the the, the free play model for that one seemed to be fairly positive. Uh, very positive the way it worked out Uh, you were selling um, inventory slots is that right yeah so we we sold
0: sold some functional items so it's a uh, Realm of the Mad God uh, free to play uh, MMO Mm -hmm. with permadeath yes and Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, dual stick shooter essentially Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, so inventory was very constrained Mm -hmm. Um, inventory where you could store items was very important because the pressure on the player is death yeah um, and when you die, you lose all your stuff, so you can actually make your time starting the second time around easier if you have a large inventory of stored up val- goods and value. Wait, hold on. So the inventory is persistent? The inventory was persistent. So, so it's, you don't it, lose your stuff when you die. So you lose everything that you have You're equipped. carrying.
1: You're oh, on. so it's like a bank. It's like a bank, yeah. Wow, okay. Well, I can see why that would be pretty compelling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so that was
0: that was a very useful thing. The other thing was um, uh, character slots. Mm-hmm. So um, you have one character slot, sure. and if that one dies, you have to start over again. But you can like level up one character, store him in a, in a character slot, and start a second character. Mm-hmm. And now you have two, and you can trade off. And they, I like that one because that's a uh, it's really just offering people more choice. It's sure. not
1: necessarily like. Playing yeah. with any crazy psychology there. Well, it's interesting. As soon as you, you said, you know, you see kind of two different types of free to play single player and multiplayer. When you say multiplayer um, free to play, I Im- immediately think of what I think of kind of like the hamster wheel multiplayer free to uh, play, which is like your Clash of Clans type game. Right. Which is like you're, you know, everyone is basically trying to race up the same ladder. Right. And they're kind of. Um, you're buying stuff because your opponents are buying stuff, right. and then they buy stuff because you're buying stuff, and um, that's definitely
0: a model. I, I personally don't go for that, but yeah. that's like, like like buying social status mm-hmm. is probably one of the bigger ways of make, making money, particularly in uh, the Asian markets. Yes, um, and it's less popular over here in the United States, but it's still extraordinarily popular.
1: Yeah, um, and the the thing there is like it's kind of it's kind of endless you know like um and it's that's definitely a model that that you know i'm uncomfortable with um and uh it's i think one of the one of the main issues with free to play is um and so when free to play first started coming over here back i guess it would have been maybe 2008 or 2009 i don't remember exactly but it, it started kind of drifting over here from, especially from, from Korea. It seems like that was yep. where it first popped up. Um, it was this very interesting model and, you know, kind of got my imagination going about all these interesting possibilities. And the the hard part about free-to-play is that um, it, I guess you could almost phrase it a race to the top instead of a race to the bottom, in that like the um, whichever model is the one that ends up making the most money is like ultimately going to be what is attracting the investment in that 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 field, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, you know, the people who are in uh, when you're investing in you know sort of these these new mobile games, and there are a flood of them, yes. right? Um, you know they're going to look at the market, and there are you know they're not really looking at all the different ways. You know they're not trying to innovate. In free to play, they're trying to find out which are the models that you know are producing the most the most money, basically. Mm-hmm. But that's um, always been the case in the game
0: industry. Sure, uh, I remember uh, uh, real time strategy games, and once it was proven that real time, particularly with Warcraft, that real time mm-hmm. strategy games were a genre that you could make money off of. There were dozens upon dozens of real time strategy games that were essentially an exact copy right um, and most of them died, and we don't remember them at all, but like anytime someone is proven to make money in the game industry, the mm-hmm. clones flood in
1: yeah yeah i mean i and and uh, the, what i the problem I see here. I'm not necessarily – I mean, you're the one who's had a sort of a rough experience with cloning, so <laughs> it's not – that's something I think of a lot. But I, I'm thinking of in kind of in terms of, like, all the um, untrodden paths for free-to-play that are still out there. Oh, that's huge. You know, it's, it's huge. It's, it seems like there's still a huge amount of possibilities, and it's all kind of drowned out by these specific models that are, are working so well. Um, and I'm kind of, you know, curious, like, when – you know, will those those avenues ever be explored or is this kind of just, just what we're what we've got right now you know I, I think they will be I think I think they absolutely will be explored
0: um, you just need you just need teams that are willing to experiment that have the freedom to experiment um, and those are rare mm-hmm. um, because I think the innovators in the game industry are always going to be less common than the the copiers and the the pure craftsmen yeah um, who like do a better version of the same thing Um but uh it, I think it, I think yeah, I think there's absolutely there's plenty of space, I mean, it excites me yeah like, I, I still love free to play as a business model,
1: yeah,
0: um, even though there's a lot of egregious examples of it out there right it's it's more like again, it's a frontier, yeah, uh, and as a frontier, I, I see the possibilities
1: well, I think it takes a lot of bravery, you know if you know to to jump into because i I find free to play design extremely challenging. Um, yes. Because you know, not only do you have to design a good game, but you have to design a good business model on top of that. And I think that's the primary reason for so much cloning is that, like, that's just that's a huge challenge. There's very few designers capable of that. So you have to you have to most of these companies, you know, they have to at least lock some things down. So they're like, okay, well, we need to at least figure out uh, some game design or some business model that's proven to work, and let's you know at least you know yeah. kind of stick with that, and then we'll change a few other things here and there. Yeah. Um. And uh, you know it's tough. I mean, I, I, you know, we're making a the game we're working on right now is a PC RTS. We would be a clone back in Nine. 1997, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> time, but times have moved the time on. Times have changed. Since now then, we're yeah, we're, you know, we're we're unique. Are, are, are you retro and yeah. avant garde at the same time? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's it's going to be just it's it's going to be a paid game or whatever you'd call a game that's on Steam, right? Premium, uh, premium. premium, yeah, premium. Oh boy, uh, and um uh but really it's it's the easy way out from a design point of view i'm just trying to make my job simpler right you know like it's it's not necessarily an ideological thing for me um i just want i just want to make a good game and focus on the, the things we can do well as a small studio and mm-hmm. you know like i don't i don't have to make these worry about these um Tough decision. It was interesting. I was at the Don't Starve talk today. Okay, I missed um, that. Yeah, which, which was really interesting. They actually started as a free to play game. Um, which I had, I don't know if I ever knew that, but if I had, I definitely had forgotten it. And that was... It, it makes it makes sense looking at it. Yeah, well, early on, they were kind of inspired by kind of the Farmvilles and the you uh-huh. know, all these sort of, you know, crafting long-term, mm-hmm. you know, building-type games. And, um, you know, it, it took sort of a dark turn at some point in, <laughs> in terms of the style and the, the mechanics and whatnot. But um, they said that... The reason why they eventually gave up on the free-to-play was that the game's economy is really core to the gameplay, right? right. You know, the, the stuff you acquire from the environment and what you do with that and, you know, how you, how you apply that to your challenges and whatnot. And, like, having free-to-play intertwine itself with that was really problematic because they were finding that they were being very conservative design-wise, Right. Because they were they were always afraid of well, you know we could come we could try this thing out here, but people could just sort of buy their way through that and would that be fun and like is that is that is that the game this should be? They were always afraid of doing um, doing some sort of very uh, distinctive unusual things that they felt like they would be comfortable doing if it was simply just you know in a box you know so to speak of like you know this is this is the game and you know buy it and now we'll just do whatever we want to inside of that Mm -hmm. um so i thought that was an interesting sort of powerful example of like you know this is this is sort of the limitations of of Mm -hmm. free to play for this this type of design Uh, i think of it as like i'm I'm a a fan
0: of uh thinking of games as uh, a form Mm -hmm. of a media of of a uh, like a form would be like uh, a poem. Uh, a haiku is a form of literature. Right. A novel is a form of literature. And they're obviously very, very different. Um, and a lot of forms th- of art have mm-hmm. been heavily influenced by business models. Right. Um, the RTS of the you know, late 90s mm-hmm. um, was very much a product of how do we sell a box to a customer? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, why did they have single-player campaigns? You know, and why did they why did they ha- start emphasizing graphics and characters and narrative? Because you could put you could write about that in a magazine easily, and you could put that on a box shot, and so on and so forth. And so, business model has always had a huge impact on the designs that we make. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it's it's not surprising to me that. Business model has a huge impact on f- f- the free to play business model. Has it just it changes the form of the game radically? For sure. Yeah. Um, now the question is: Is there still a rich space you can explore within that that box? Right. Um, and I think there still is. Yeah,
1: I, I think there is. I think we all just need an understanding that it is a box. Yes. Right. Like you want to make a free to play game, that's fine. You're just you're now in the free to play box, and you have limited op- You have limited options. You have constraints, which probably every every team and every project does. Yeah. And but you have to be aware like making that making that choice, you're getting a certain benefit and you're getting a certain you're getting a certain cost. Yeah. Um and that's really the important thing to understand. It's it's huge. It's yeah. huge. Yeah. Now, so Triple Town is kind of interesting because certainly it could have worked as a paid game. Yep. Yeah. And it basically worked as a free to play game even though I would say it was clearly not like pushing the benefits the potential benefits of free-to-play so looking at it that way do you feel like if you did it over again you would do it the same way or what would you do i am delighted we
0: did it the way we did even though we perhaps stumbled upon it okay um because one of the things that happens when you make a free-to-play game is you get massive distribution sure uh and so this game uh, was spread to millions and millions of people mm-hmm. because of the fact that it was a free-to-play game, mm-hmm. um, and there's a certain type of brain that really likes Triple Town. Yes, and I think if we were selling it as a premium game, mm-hmm. our, our chances of finding that sub-segment of the audience that had that brain would have been
1: much lower. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but but as and so, a, do you define that that success in terms of personal satisfaction that a uh, there's been a huge amount of people who've played the game. That's, or that's, you, that's part you, of it. Or do you think of it in terms of like the actual revenue that eventually got generated? I, I think I think both. Right. I okay. think both really really would come into play for that one. Yeah. It'd be interesting to talk to the guys behind say threes might be a great example. Right. Because I feel like that's a game that's very much in the same type of format as mm-hmm. Triple Town. Um, and they released for three dollars, I think. I yeah. think that's what it is. And it seems like it's done very well. But who knows, right? Like right. neither neither one of you will never know exactly like what would right. happen. Well, well, if maybe would if we go off and compare numbers, that
0: that would yeah. actually be a fascinating thing. So the fun thing I love about Threes, by the way, uh-huh. is you look at his early prototypes and his prototyping process, mm. and it has nothing whatsoever to do with Triple Town.
1: Okay, sure.
0: And it was this oh,
1: you know that's funny because I actually. I was really thinking of the format. I guess there are a lot of similarities with yeah. Triple Town in some ways. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. but it,
0: but it's a it's a, but mechanically they're actually vaguely they ended up being vaguely related. But right. he also had that bottom up design process that ended uh-huh. up in this. You know,
1: again another game that almost has that sort of feeling of discovery. You know, yes, you know, for yeah, for sure. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, and both games have some very admirable UI elements um, in terms of, like, you know, when they get their numbers together, like they're, those weird little faces, and they kind of look at each other. Right. And one of the things I always really admire about Triple Town was that whole thing of, um, you know, as you move your finger around the the board, you know, the the trees kind of, like, inch in. Yes. You know, they kind yeah. of rhythmically move in towards the spot that they're going to go into. And, like, that's that's just one of those just little pieces of work that like once you I'm sure like when you guys did that for the first time, you had this wonderful sense of like, wow. Yeah, like, yes. I, I see the game so much clearer, like then, or like anyone can now see the game so much clearer than And, and that's before.
0: one of those classic moments of um so you play test it, mm-hmm. the test the players complain about stuff. Yeah. And you're like, oh my god, what do we do? And and then you talk about in that one, like we talked about some sort of pulsing or movement or something, and the programmer uh, Christian, Christian Sulos mm-hmm. uh, went off and um, put something together, and it wasn't quite right. And we went back and forth a couple times, and then it just clicked. Right, um, and it was like, but it was very much that iterative process in action. It wasn't a, it wasn't brilliance out of the blue. Right, it was oh, there's a problem here, now we have to have a solution. Sure. Let's try a solution that doesn't quite work. Let's iterate on
1: it. How can we teach people that this is the result of their their yeah. move and, like, well, let's give them some hints? And I, I've always felt that anytime I, I, I put something in the UI that, that, like, really hints at what an action is going to do or makes it clear that the player has made an action, um, like, it really pays these big dividends. Yeah. Um, there was a talk yesterday by uh, Republic... The, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you've played that yet. I haven't you... played it yet. They're
0: they're they're in Seattle, I think, aren't e- they? Uh,
1: yeah, probably. Uh, I'm not sure, but it's uh <laughs> you know, it's like a touch touch game for the iPad, um, and they're kind of coming from like a Melgar or Solid background, um, and the idea is like you know you have this character moving around the world, and you're supposed to do these single touches on the environment to like hide behind this pillar or attack this guard or or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they they showed at one point, they showed early on, you know, you you were just pressing and then the character, you know, the character would move. But, like, there was a problem. People would, they weren't sure if it, if it, they weren't sure if their action was re- uh, received by the game, you mm-hmm. know. and So they would, like, hit it multiple times or they would, like, they you know, they would try to, like, hit different points or, like, you know, there's a little bit of frustration. And then uh, because early on they had this high-level goal of we're going to have no UI. right. Right, that is the one of the pillars of the project. By the way, that's a very classic AAA uh, perspective. I've heard many people say that, and then I wasn't surprised that their eventual path was we gave up on that pillar. Right, (laughs) um, immersion. Like I, I, this is actually
0: one of the shocking things that happened to me at GDC. Uh I met someone who is passionate about immersion, Mm -hmm. and I've, I've, like, I. I never grew up in an era where immersion was a word that mattered. Sure, Uh, I thought you became engaged and you enter flow and all these other things. And and he was explaining why he was incredibly passionate about immersion and it meant this very specific AAA console idea. Yeah, Um, and uh, it ties into that no UI theme and
1: it's almost a package deal. Yeah, Um, yeah. Like I have to. I have to. Sometimes it's not. You're like you you. Sometimes you have to just say, like, look, people, UI is not the enemy. You right. Know, bad yeah. UI is bad UI, right? Yeah. There's nothing good about that. But, like, but so, yeah, so in, in Republic, uh, they, um, uh, they simply adopted the system where when, you let's say you clicked on a pillar that you want them to hide, they have a little circular icon that shows a character crouching. Mm-hmm. And once you click, then suddenly it appears. And so you then know the game has received my action. Like it interpreted my action correctly. Yeah. And, you know, maybe she'll be, you know, the character will be able to get there in time. Maybe she won't. But I know that my job is done. Right. Right. And, like, that was one of those, like, kind of like watershed moments, right? Nice. Um, They
0: completed the feedback loop. Right. Right. It's like I do an action. The system says I'm executing the action. But then it gives you feedback. Yeah. That says, oh, by the way, you finished. You you did the action. Yeah, Something's yeah. in process. Now. And
1: it, it seems it seems like a small thing, but like it is not a small thing. You know no. to, to like no. give that give that feedback. And like even in in um, in like in say like in, in Civ IV, I remember like just just putting in like interface sounds of like when you move the mouse over a button and suddenly getting a little just a, mm. even just a small little click uh-huh. and like getting the button to highlight and getting mm-hmm. the buttons that are not. Usable to gray out in just the right way, and it most and importantly, like when you mouse over a grayed out button, it does not highlight. You know, right. like all of these things. You know, they're all very small, but they're super important to yeah. like getting people to like, you know, get just that right. Like where they're not thinking about the interface, they're feeling the interface. It's
0: the it's the micro learning yeah. feed and micro feedback that tells you you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Threes does that very well, by the way. Yeah, for sure. Like the, Because the one thing I actually like about Threes over something like Triple Town, Triple Town has a touch. Mm-hmm. And so we, we tried to get in that partial uh, feedback, you know, where you're partially completed the action if you're holding down. Right. But ultimately, a lot of people just tap. Mm-hmm. And we never we never get a uh, we never get a strong feedback system in in place. Sure. But threes has this dragging, and you can partially drag and yeah. move, and, and then you can kind of it get back. a sense
1: of what's going to happen. And yeah. they're like,
0: no, that's not what I wanted. And all, yeah. yeah, yeah. But reversible actions is something that where you get to you get to explore, test the waters a little bit, right. and reverse. I I really like systems that have
1: that. Yeah, that is nice, especially if you can do it in a way where it's not heavy handed. Like there's some. There's a number of tactical strategy games, you know the advanced force thing where like they've actually kind of it's a convention that you every move takes two taps right like you tap where it goes and then you have to confirm that that's what you want and right. it's nice that you can cancel it, but is that is requiring two clicks for everything actually worth that like uh, I, I, I think know.
0: of it, I think of it as escalator design, right like an escalator, you know it 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 works it works when it's not moving and it works when it's moving. Right. And uh, it's sort of like there's a natural, like the second level of confirmation is just a nat- the natural part of doing the action in the first place. Right, right. Uh, yeah. 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 And that's when you get that, it feels real sort of
1: good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I guess we're probably caught up to the, the present now. You, is there, you want to talk about some of the projects that you're working on now? Uh, yeah. Um, so the main one, I'm more. Oh, well, wait. No, I already asked. I was like, I wanted to make sure I asked the question: Would you have released Triple Town as a paid game? Yeah, (laughs) but now you said you don't think you would change that.
0: Yeah, we got an opportunity to do that experiment. Right. Uh, We we released it as a paid game on Steam, so you can actually buy it as a paid game on Steam. That's right. Um, And uh, you know, it did okay, but uh, I I I like the reach that is on mobile. Yeah. Um, the uh, the game that I'm working on right now is a it's actually a single player game. And I've been trying to do more multiplayer games mm-hmm. um, but it's a single player game called um road not taken right and it's I think of it as a puzzle rogue like right. um, and it's really a mashup of a whole bunch of different things um but it's a it's a little more of a personal game it's a little more of an artsy game um, you are this ranger who is um Trying to save lost children in a forest, mm-hmm. um, and you don't actually—it's not really necessarily a um, combat game where you are attacking things. It's more about um, manipulating the environment and finding your way through this crowded, awkward space to like get to these children and bring them out. Right. Um and it's a—it's a the core mechanic is it's a puzzle. But it's um, it's more along. It's, it's a loose puzzle. Mm-hmm. Like there are tight puzzles where there's one solution. Here there's many solutions, and it's a matter of like doing it more efficiently. So there's a survival element. Like you, it's cold in the forest, and you can eventually like run out of energy and end up uh, collapsing. Right. Um, and then of course the children don't get rescued, and that's very sad. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> um, but then layered on top of all this 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 sort of core system are all the, a lot of the roguelike um, aspects in that it's really about mastery of your environment mm-hmm. and all the objects have three or four levels of complexity to them mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, here's an object that I can use as a key and that's really nice. And then you figure out later on, however, it's really expensive to use it as a key. Um, however, I can go, if I, if I use it in combination with this other object, it goes and it lets me like... Deal with this this attacking object that I really don't like it or lets me uh,
1: uh, and do you expect there's gonna be a sense of discovery with it or uh,
0: yeah yeah it's, it's a game of like many
1: many layered mysteries okay um, does so, that mean you feel like it's not quite as repeatable as Triple Town or I mean you say roguelike and that's Yeah, it's of it's of very the, repeatable. That's that's sort of one of the core tenets of of, yeah. of roguelikes, but uh Do you know you know how
0: in roguelikes and NetHack you you learn that like for example you learn how to bless objects and okay. you learn how to use like the the, the classic is the um um you learn to use corpses in particular ways. Sure. And so things that used to be just like junk objects you end up finding out are, are actually very valuable, rare tools okay. that if you find the tools and use them together in a particular way, you can actually advance much further. Mm-hmm. Um, this game has that same sort of aspect to it. So, so Road Not Taken, there, there's... Um, what a, there's a there's a dating simulation in it there's okay, wow. um All right. uh it it basically follows the life of your character over a fifteen year arc right um so there's like you you have fifteen years to like live the best life you possibly can and uh at as as you go you age and like you build up relationships with people and horrible horrible things happen right um and uh yeah it's kind of like uh a meditation on uh, growing older and life, and how the life we end up going down is not necessarily the one we expected when we started out.
1: Hmm. All right. Well, that's some heady stuff.
0: <laughs> it's a puzzle game. Yeah, of
1: course. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, I think that's that's probably a lot of a lot of podcasting for today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all good. Um, well, thanks for uh, thanks for taking part. This was uh, this was a lot of fun. This was lovely. Thank you.